the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. Joining me this week, well, it doesn't get more exciting than this. I mean, I have been a Bon Jovi fan since their Fahrenheit album back in 85. So um, I have got Richie Sambora, and it is very, very exciting. It is post Hall of Fame, and so we, we talk about that. We talk about his new album with Orianti, Radio Free America. And then I'm going to present to you a new band, a band called Bad Wolves. They have a new album called Disobey that actually comes out this Friday. We have a great chat about that. And yes, my favorite person at the end here, we have got George Thorogood, who enjoys calling me Montreal Mitch. Whenever I see him, it's just, hey, Montreal Mitch is here. And listen, I have no problem with the great George Thorogood calling me that. His last album, Party of One, came out in 2017, which is just him, totally stripped down, definitely worth checking out. He is on tour with a dollar of every ticket sold going to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Foundation. So uh, always great when, when artists get involved and support a cause like that. But before that, before we get to all these great interviews, once again, co-hosting this week from the great firehouse it is the one the only bill leverty bill always always a pleasure to have you on man the pleasure's mine mitch thank you so much for having me on this show of yours where you have such great interviews with such great musicians a-list people you're getting them all the time congratulations yeah thank you and and of course uh I like to uh, to always support everybody, and, and so if you could head out there, folks, and support BillLeverty.com. He's got a new two-for-one song, Memorable and Love is a Love Song. So, so Bill, two songs for a buck. I mean, wow, that's a deal. That oh, is a thanks, deal. man. I, I want to make, uh, make it so everybody can can get a copy. So I'll make it easy. A, a dollar, the yeah. website automatically sends you two songs. So thanks yeah. for mentioning it. And I love that because... What I've always loved about Firehouse is that you and 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 George, quite frankly, uh, is that you've always been very fan friendly. Uh, you go to a Firehouse show, there's no egos. If somebody wants to get an autograph or a picture, you guys have always been yep, yep, yep. And here you've got two songs. You could probably do a dollar ninety nine each and 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 milk a fan for four bucks. I mean, they'd get their money's worth, obviously, because the songs are great. But you go, no, you know what? Here, two for one. Come on. And well, don't get me wrong. If people want to donate, you know, five hundred dollars, they're welcome to do so. <laughs> <laughs> right. But still. Um, but Radio Free America, we've got Richie Sambor. He's got this new album out with his uh, partner in crime, uh, Orianti, who, of course, uh, had spent some time playing for Michael Jackson and Alice Cooper and just a fun, fun album. It came out on uh, May 11th. And um what a thrill to talk to uh, to to a to a guy from Bon Jovi for me. Now, talk to me a little bit about as a guitarist point of view, because whenever you do these lists or these magazines do lists, Richie doesn't get on those lists very often, or if he does, he doesn't get very highly. But I think that his guitar playing was not only essential to uh, Bon Jovi. But it was essential 80s playing. A lot of bands after Bon Jovi hit, after You Give Love a Bad Name hit, people tried to capture that sound. And if you're trying to capture that sound, that means the guy's obviously doing something right. I mean, right? That, you know, help me out with this. 
How do you well, rate him? Well, to me, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, he's top shelf, A-list guitar player by far. And not only his technique and his songwriting put him there, but to me, his soloing is always the perfect solo for the song. And, and guitarists um, are often tempted to show how fast they can play or shred here or do this trick there. Yeah, doodle. Richie, oh, yeah, doodle. <laughs> Richie always put the perfect balance of a really cool melody with really cool energy into his solos that made his soloing so good. And um, I, I got to tell you, I mean, he is just a phenomenal songwriter. I mean, those songs that they wrote, everybody, yeah. you know, was affected by them in the 80s. I was certainly influenced by him quite a bit. And I met him a few times, and he was one of the coolest, r huge rock stars I'd ever met in my life. Yeah, and he's also a, a genuine rock fan. And, and you're right about the songwriting. You look at a band like Bon Jovi, and a lot of people go, oh, they're a hair metal band, blah, 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 fluffy, fluffy, fluffy. And it's like, yeah, well, they sold 130 million uh, copies. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And you tell me how many better songs have been written than Wanted, Dead or Alive or Living on a Prayer. And we're talking to this genre. I don't want to hear people say, well, Elvis and uh, the Beatles. Yeah, listen. They wrote some of the greatest American rock songs, iconic songs, and Richie, as much as John, I mean, they were they were an unbeatable team. Did did, did Bon Jovi? Did, do you look at them as having opened the door for Firehouse in the sense of they 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 made the genre popular and they made that kind of music popular and that that led to bands of that second wave like Firehouse to have the door open and like, hey, thank you, John, thank you, Richie, for having done that. Absolutely, without question, and I'll go a step further, that uh, when I was working in a music store <clears throat> trying to get a record deal, um, I was able to get backstage at a Bon jo Jovi show because my boss was doing a promotion kind of thing, and I gave John and Richie our band's demo tape at the time, and they sent out their security guy, a guy named Danny, to find me in the crowd at the Richmond Coliseum of 15,000 people or whatever. It was sold out. And he found me and he said, John wants to meet you tomorrow. Wow. And, um, so they, they, John and Richie met the whole band the next day and said he really liked the demo tape and he was going to work to work with us. So he actually sent our demo tape to Derek Shulman, who, for those who don't know, he's probably one of the most powerful A&R guys in the business, still, yeah. still very influential. Day. Oh yeah. Very, very powerful A&R guy. And, um, Derek, you know, he said he heard some good songs, didn't hear some, any killer songs, but he, he really, you know, took interest in us. But, um, the things that I remember in us meeting with John and John met with us every time he came into town back then, he, he took a meeting with us and invited us backstage to talk to him was that after John was and Richie were done talking to us, John would leave and go do some other stuff, and Richie would talk to me for an hour um, about guitar tone and about songwriting and about uh, technique, and, and he was just so gracious with his time and such a cool guy. So I'll yeah. never forget what, what a cool dude Richie Sambora was to me and how he not only, you know, he and, and, and the Bon Jovi, the whole band, helped our genre out so much, but he really helped me. And he, he helped everybody in our band a whole lot. 
and and um, I can't thank him enough. Yeah, and that that's great to say because you know I've been backstage and and you have and and people always give a demo and stuff and and a lot of bands I will see them as they walk out they'll toss it into the into the closest bin, and the fact that they actually took the time to listen and then take it further and get a meeting I mean that just speaks volumes at what kind of people they are and it's it's just well great. he was also the, brutally honest where you know he'd say hey you know. I don't hear that song as being good. I, you know, you need to, you need to make this better. And, and whereas a lot of people will, they don't want to hurt your feelings. Right. You know, they're nice people. Richie was a nice guy and he could also tell, you know, kick me in the butt and, and make me work harder. So, yeah, and that's what you need, you know, that's exactly what everybody needs, but it's hard to do. It takes, it takes a great, a great personality to be able to pull that off. Yeah. Yeah, I so agree with that. So let let us get into this interview. It is a dual interview. I do have Richie and Orianti on the line, and so therefore we cover everything. We talk about uh, did Yui McDonald or you McDonald, I should say, actually play on the albums, or was it Alec? Oh, wait for that answer. Um, we talk about the Hall of Fame. We talk about the new album, Radio Free America. And, of course, with Orianthi, we talk Michael Jackson and Alice Cooper. We've got it all covered. So uh, without further ado, here is the one, the only, Richie Sambora and the one, the only, Orianthi. We are speaking with RSO's Richie Sambora and Orianthi. The new album is Radio Free America, available now. Uh, pleasure to talk to you both. I've been a fan, in fact, of both of your careers. Richie, of course, with Bon Jovi. Orianti, I got to know you when you were with Alice Cooper. You did a great job there. Uh, just great to see new We've music. We've been fanning ourselves, yes. We're fanning. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's great to have new music from you, from you guys. So talk to me about working collaboratively, because, of course, you've done solo albums, Orianti. You've done solo albums, Richie. Talk to me about sort of bringing the two of you together and working in collaboration. Well, it's a new sound. Right. created and we're really excited about it and you know with bob rock bob rock in the mix as well you know i mean it's just something that we're really proud of and it's powerful but great messages behind the songs i mean you know there's something for everybody i think on this record and it's pretty diverse but at the same time it's pretty it's really cohesive with our sound that we created with our vocals and guitar playing together yeah so so talk to me about that because you know you, you can't so call so there, right? So, 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 talk to me about this because you can't call this album a rock album or a country album or a jazz album or a blues album. You've got these influences from everywhere. Was it just that this was the first one, and you sort of wanted to get all the influences on there? And and, and talk to me also about working with Bob Rock. Of course, uh, Rich, you haven't worked with him since Keep the Faith. Um, talk to me about bringing Keep Bob. Keep the pace. Keep the yeah, because he he was of course known for the big bombastic Motley Crue, Aerosmith, and stuff. Uh, Talk to me about having him come in here and, and, and capture these sort of more bluesier sounds and softer right. sounds. You know, the, other thing, the other thing that happened was uh, Ori and I became so prolific at a time that we needed somebody to come in and sift through the stuff and help us just pick out what was going to actually happen, you know, because we had just uh, a wealth of stuff that we had written over a period of time. And, um, you know, we just decided that we were going to just try a bunch of different stuff that we always wanted to do. You know, I mean, both of us love every uh, genre of music that we uh, made our foray into as an artist. Uh, so, I mean, basically, it worked, basically. And we were able to actually, co uh, you know, 
keep a uh, sonic palette that was uh, consistent to what our sound was so we don't lose you, you know? So that's not the easiest thing to do. So basically, that's almost like a three-album foray to get to uh, our record. So our first record was like we've been, we were together for three years already. So. Right. So, so talk to me about this. Is this RSO a project and a band that is going forward and there'll be a second and third one? Or is this sort of, uh, you know, we're, we're collaborating now and then next year or in 2020, Richie, you go and do another solo album and Orianti, you go off and do another solo album? How, how do we, or, or is it sort of, can both exist at the same time? I honestly think both can exist at the same time. Yeah, because, you know, people, this is a new sound we've created together. And hopefully that, you know, we get a lot of fans that, that love, you know, what we do together, you know. And and uh, and then, you know, we've got songs on there that Richie sings solo and then I sing solo. And then, you know, in the future, who knows, it's like three, it's kind of like three things in one everyone gets, you know what I mean? So if Richie released a solo record, I do, or we make another RSO record which we will do i mean we have so many songs we've written together so that will definitely happen you know and i'm i'm proud of the songs we're writing now too together you know so there's there's a lot of stuff that people expect musically everything from us you know in the future it's um it's kind of wide open i think that's the cool thing about it you know support each other and and uh all of that yeah, it really is uh, important to support each other. Uh, just quickly talk to me a little bit about Bob Rock uh, and what he brings to the table in terms... I mean, I know he sifted through all these different songs, but as a producer, what does Bra- Bob bring? Because we know that he did a greatness with Metallica's Black Album. We know Motley Crue, Dr. Feelgood, uh, and Keep to Faith, of course. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what he brings and, and, and why choose Bob as the producer for this. Well, when you look at Bob, first of all, Obviously, Bob and I have a track record together, and he was very much a part of being a producer on Slippery and also New Jersey, as so was I. And so we did a lot of work on those records, and obviously Keep the Faith is a, a big departure for Bon Jovi right in the middle of the grunge period. So that being said, we conquered a lot of stuff together. And actually, the night I met Ori, I hadn't seen him for years, and uh, that's when we hooked up. Back then, but it was uh, it took about two years to actually start working together again. And uh, now he's got to understand this, this is the thing. When you say you know he's well known for Motley Crue and Metallica, he just produced the Michael Bublé album that that, that did 12 million records. True. You know what I mean? Yeah, so true. The, um, the the arc of what he does is insane, and he's probably responsible for about 350 million records on this planet as a producer, writer, artist, whatever. And uh, he knows a lot about a lot of stuff. And uh, he's like a brother, you know, lived here at the house, recording in the kitchen for a long, long time now. Yeah, and, and also a great Canadian. Orianti, I, I want to talk to you just quickly about your, your time with Alice Cooper. That's where I first met you. That's where we first interviewed um, talk to me about getting that gig, and, and what do you learn from a seasoned veteran like Alice Cooper in terms of putting on a show, in terms of theatrics, in terms of... Because folks forget that even if Alice is doing costume changes, the band is always on stage, and there's, it, there's no break for the band. Um, just talk to me about working with Alice and, and what that experience meant for you personally, professionally, uh, and so on. Yeah, a lot. I mean, I learned a lot. It's a full-on show, you know. It's like a theater production. We have, you know, you got like real swords going on. You got freaking 
boa, you know, constrictors coming out there. You got, you know, pythons. You got freaking blood and guillotines, and and uh, you know, and and Alice is always on. It's 100 percent every night, you know. And the band we rehearse for months before we go out. So uh, we were choreographed. Um, all the guitar parts, you know, are harmonized. There's a lot that goes into that full production. I mean, you know, a, a lot and. I, I loved it. You know, it's something different. You take on a character role as well. I played an irritable zombie, so I had blood all over me every night. Pretty much celebrated Halloween for three years. Great. <laughs> it was complete Halloween every night. And it was great, um, you know, because people, you, you take them away from reality. So you, if you're able to put on a show like that, you feel good about it and being part of something. And Alice is the nicest person in the world, and he introduced me and Richie. So, you know, he's that, he's that will always be family, and I, I love being a part of that for that period of time and yeah it was definitely a great experience for sure and as a fan i'll just say it, it was nice to see you move on and go with richie because as a fan i i think you, you what you and richie are doing together is absolutely phenomenal and 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 having nita go over to alice was phenomenal so for for fans it's it's a win-win it really is um yeah yeah uh richie yeah absolutely yeah sure. Uh, Richie, quickly. Obviously, you were this. Uh, we're coming off the heels of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. Um, talk to me about the that. Heels. The heels like of it. it. I know. Um, but just <laughs> talk to me about that, because as listen, I, I've, I'm a diehard Bon Jovi fan. I, I have followed the band since the first. Well, God, since Fahrenheit, seventy eight hundred. Since you know, she don't know me and all that. Bought everything. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah. It's it's crazy the amount of Bon Jovi CDs I have downstairs. But but talk to me about this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction because as fans we go, well, when they were first eligible, it should have been a no brainer. Blah blah blah. And of course, you waited and you waited and you waited. But now that it happened. What was it like? Does it validate? Does it? Does it, is it just like man? Talk to me about the experience you know, and what it means. You know, anytime, anytime you get an award, it's really, really nice. And honestly, I, you know, I wasn't holding my breath. You know what I'm saying? Because you know, we've been looked over a couple of times, but I wasn't really, really thinking about it. It wasn't something that it was on my mind. It was, you know, RSO is what's been, uh, you know, taking the forefront now for a bunch of years in a row, and. Uh, so it was, it was a lot of fun to get back and play. It was like all, all week, you know. The kids saw each other, and we saw the kids and hung out with each other. It was, it was actually pretty cool. It, was, it wasn't like a, it wasn't awkward or anything like that, and, you know. So it just kind of just, you know, a band is like a cast system sometimes. You just kind of lay into it the way it was. And don't forget, I was there for 31 years. So it was actually easy, easy, fun. Yeah, 31 great years, and... It was it was fun to see as a fan. Now I, I quickly mentioned seventy eight hundred, and if I can just ask you a question about that, uh, to me it's an album that has been overlooked in the band's catalog in your, uh, you know, your discography. Why do you think that that album didn't get sort of the respect fifteen twenty years on, where the band stopped playing songs? Uh, hey, I, first, first of all, I, I thought it was not uh, mixed and produced well. And that being said is because our producer at the time had double booked himself. So there was, he's working double shifts. He's working with us during the day and another band at night. So that really, really uh, kind of made things a little tense, obviously. So I just I didn't think the production was up to par. And I, I thought that we 
should have made more strides after the first record to become a band, not. It was more or less going towards John being the, the front guy and nothing else. Uh, and I kept on going, American Rock and Roll Band, American Rock and Roll Band. Yes, rock and roll band. So, the was okay. I, like I said, I don't know if we had the songs, uh, but I don't think it was up to par. I mean, if you put on, you know, if, if that record was produced uh, or sounded like a Bob Rock production, it would be a whole different story. I'm going to have to agree with you there, <laughs> honestly. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, I just thought it was a very watery, uh, discombobulated sounding record, and I was very actually surprised that after going on the road with, uh, you know, the Scorpions and Priests and all these people and stuff like that, that uh, we didn't get more shit thrown at us, actually. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, uh, and, yeah, and you I, can't imagine. Oh, I can imagine, because I, I've always found it... Uh, interesting when you look back at the band's uh, rise that you that you were categorized as metal and you're doing these shows with priest and all and it was like well bon jovi's not really metal they're they're, they're more you know uh orionthi well uh, yeah the, the, also the thing was outside this country nothing ever faulted that was the other thing once we got out of this country and slippery hit in europe and all this other shit i mean it was like, uh, basically uh it was on that was it it was on you know, it was like all of a sudden there was the band, and then it became what it was, and that's it. Yeah, it really did. Yeah. And so it's like, well, and I'll 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 move on from the band thing in a second. But but you do mention band at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You McDonald did get uh, inducted along. Uh, I think he it was well were well deserved. Uh, how much did he actually play on those early albums? Because we know he played on Runaway, and we know that he's thanked in all the albums, and there's all these suspicions that he played probably a little more than Alec did. Is that a fair thing well, to yeah, say? Well, yeah, he did at the time. He did at the time because, you know, it, there's no knock on Alec. Alec, just, you know, it, it, he takes a little longer sometimes to come up with a part or whatever. So, and we were moving pretty quickly. So, and Yui was an old friend of not only mine, I mean, I met Yui when I was 18 years old, doing sessions with him. He was one of the first guys that ever helped me out, you know. So we knew each other for a long time. And, uh, yeah, no, he just, it's well-deserved, and I definitely was a, a part of the advocation for that, for sure. I mean, yeah, Kid Clyde, been, not only that, he's been a bass player in a band for all this time and created some of those parts. So, you know, yeah. I'm not saying I'll do the job, but Yui definitely helped out, that's for sure. Yeah, and... So there you go. And it's he good to hear. To for sure. I mean, you know, the oh, greatest that, guy, unbelievable bass player, all that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely greatest guy. I've had a chance to meet him. Just absolutely wonderful. Uh, Orianthi, uh, folks first got to hear of you in a more sort of um, more elaborate way when you, when you were with Michael Jackson's band. Uh, talk to me about how a young lady from Australia shows up in America and ends up with Michael Jackson and then Alice Cooper and then Richie Sambora, it, it, it's, it truly is sort of a fantasy, right? I mean, how did you sort of position yourself to get, was it just auditions and skills or was it luck? Was it, I mean, talk to me about it. Cause it's been an incredible you know, career. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work. When I was 15, I quit school. Quit school when I was 15. I, joined, I had three cover bands going and I just kept on trying to, you know, write and produce music myself at home, my studio. And I sent it out to every record label that I could find contact for. And I finally got a deal with Jimmy Ivey when I was 20. So I moved 
to America when I was 20 years old and started my first big record. And then as I was making my record, um, I was actually in the studio with Diane Warren and we're doing a song. And I got a message from on MySpace from Michael Jackson's MD that Michael was going to call me that evening because he wanted me as his uh, lead guitar player for the tour. Now, I called him. Uh, I mean, I, I said, yeah, sure. You know, I called the MD and then put Michael on the phone and Michael's like, I really want you to come in tomorrow when beat it, do Diana, and want to be starting something. And I was already already with Gaffin Interscope, so I was making my album. I didn't tell him. I didn't tell the label. I just went in. Come on, this is bringing Michael Jackson, so, you know, I want to work with him. So I worked with him and for like three months, and it was the most incredible experience to be able to do that. Um, also very traumatizing me at the end, you know, it's just like an insane situation, you know, what happened. Um, oh, yeah. So he, you know, when he, when he passed, I mean, and then I had a record ready to go with Interscope. So Jimmy and Ron Fair were like, let's just put it out, you know? Then I had a, I had a number one song. I had a platinum record in like America, Australia and Japan. And I was on this crazy tour with that single and album and, and with my band and all of that. But honestly, I was so kind of distraught with what happened with Michael. I didn't enjoy it at all. You know, I needed a moment. But it was all, you know how it is with labels and stuff. They're all like, go, go, you know. So it was, um, that was crazy. But I worked really, really hard to have that, you know, success with that record as well. I worked it extensively. And um, and then after that, that ran for, you know, a few years. Um, I decided to make an independent album with Dave Stewart, Heaven in the Hell. And then I got a call when I was in the studio making that record from Alice Cooper to say, hey, I need a lead guitar player my guitar player left for um for Sin Lizzie and so I really enjoyed working with you on American Idol and I did some work with Bob Ezrin you know um, in the studio right. with some uh different artists and um so yeah I was like well I love Alice you know and so I was like well you know what yeah I'll I'll definitely come out with you you know um and then it ended up being three years <laughs> so I just loved it you know but it was 25 songs I had to learn in a week Alice Cooper song, so you can imagine. Uh, oh. That was an easy task, but uh, yeah, it was a uh, Halo of Flies really got me, 11 minute song. Not that it was difficult technically, it was just remembering all the parts, you know what I'm saying? Like it was very, I had to really put my mind to it. So I literally told everybody, I love you all, but I will not be available for a week. I have to get into Alice Cooper world here. And then we went on a world tour and we just played it, you know, kind of thousands of people for three years and I covered myself in blood and had a, had a blast. So yeah, that's kind of how, I mean, but I'm, I'm missing out on a lot of things with how everything came about with just, you know, label and all that stuff and the journey and ups and downs and all that. It's just a lot of work, really. You just keep on going, you know, as an artist, it's just, if you love it, you want to make it your life. You just dedicate all your time to it, be the best you can be and keep on going. That's all you can do. The the decision to leave Alice Cooper, was it you met Rich and you said, hey, you know what, we've got something here, let's go explore this? Or was it so much like, yeah. okay, so it wasn't like, oh, I'm just, I'm tired yeah. of this, it's, it's too much, I don't want to do the blood, I just want to, there wasn't any of that. No, I loved it. Okay. No, 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 I loved, I loved playing Alice. And we had, we had the uh, Motley tour coming up, but it was an extensive tour again. You know, I mean, we literally toured, I think it was like eight or ten months of the year. So full on, you know, 
And I decided that I wanted to make a record and so did Richie and we decided to make it together. We have, you know, chemistry and we just had amazing songs we'd written and it was a, a decision that we made, you know? Yeah. So Alice is, Alice is in full support. I mean, you know, he loves Richie and, you know, uh, he was like, you know, a father of me on the road, you know, such a insightful, uh, amazing person, you know, Alice and his wife, Cheryl and, and Calico and everybody. So, and the band, like my brothers. So we all stay in contact. We all hang out and it's wonderful, you know, it really is. Oh yeah, it really is. And, and of course, uh, you know, Ryan Roxy and Tommy and they're great guys. Um, Richie, let me just get back to songwriting here for a second, because on Radio Free America, and in fact, both of you, Orianti and, and, and Richie, you've, you've written these great songs. Lyrically, they, they speak to you. And of course, over the years, you give Love a Bad Name, Wanted Dead or Alive, all these big, big songs. Richie, what what is sort of, what makes a good song for you? What is sort of the, your secret sauce, if you want, for, for writing? And, and how do you sort of compose a song? What's, what's sort of the ingredients that go into it? You know, I think it just should be a story that either relates to, obviously, humanity and what people normally, everybody goes through more human stuff on this planet that they don't. So if you can, you know, uh, as a songwriter, kind of hold up a mirror to some of that stuff, it becomes not only consoling the people, but it's entertainment and it's it, there's uh, some kind of communal thing that happens when people jump around to a, the same song and they're all feeling the same thing. So I think it's a, it's a piece of that. Uh, you know, I mean, usually, you know, we write from the title and the title gives you kind of a, a place. Uh, you know, it's a story. It's a movie in itself, you know. But, you know, a lot of times that look, comes out of a riff sometimes. But for me, most of the times it comes out of some feeling of lyrical idea, actually, believe it or not, not, the guitar doesn't come first for me. It's more melody and lyric and stuff like that. So, but, you know, that's just me. Yeah. Incredible songs you've written over the years. And then I'll just I'll follow up with this. The, the first uh, solo album, Stranger in This Town, Bon Jovi at the time riding a wave of popularity that you can't even describe. I mean, top of the, uh, of, you know, of the roller coaster, if you want. What was it like that first time breaking out and saying, okay, it's going to be my voice on these songs, it's going to be my artistic direction on these songs, this is my album. Uh, talk to me about Stranger in This Town and just saying, okay, I'm going to go out and do this. And, and what was sort of the compelling moment that said, yeah, I have to do this, I, I can't well, I, just... I couldn't wait, I couldn't wait to do it. I was like, you know, I needed to break out of that, you know, and it's obviously not a record that the record company was going to be expecting or anything like that, but that's not what I made. So, you know they expected to get a bunch of record or something and that's not what happened obviously but uh you know i love that album and so many great people played on it and you know i got a chance to tour on my own but if you ask me if there's any trepidation i mean are you kidding me i couldn't wait for that opportunity if you're not an entertainer or an artist man if you get a chance to I, listen i just wanted to be a singer you know and 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 you know get my message across and obviously that was a leap that was going towards growing up because those lyrics were a whole different substance so you know that's the way songs go they teach you as you go they're kind of like a journal in your life and uh that was definitely one of those points but no man are you kidding me that's like when i walk on stage i'm excited man we're gonna go out there and raise some hell with great songs and then you know go at it as two guitar players who really mean what they are you know 
and uh, and from what I've seen so far, uh, people are really digging it. You know, I mean, because we were, we walk out there with all this new material and playing festivals and different stuff like that. Second course, we had the audience, no problem. That was a good sign. So, yeah. you know, so we're really excited. You know, that's all. I do want to talk about um, the an upcoming tour because I. Uh, there aren't any dates available that I'm seeing right now. So, and and by the way, when you do get out there, hopefully songs like Rosie and Ballad of Youth will be resurrected for the set list. But uh, what are the, sort of the plans for touring? Are we going to go out on a six-month ex- extensive tour? Are we going to do a few select shows? What is sort of the the future in well, terms of? Well, you know, that, it's one of those things that in this business nowadays that has to build. Uh, you know, because I think what happens is there's a perception that goes out there and it's in, in people's mind's eye and also in their souls that they know us as this specific entity and what we're both our life experience has shown other people. Right. But this is a whole other view and that's what we meant it to be. That's how come we were trying so many different genres and try, say, Hey, where do we live? And we found out that we live in all of them and then <laughs> making that sonic palette consistent throughout all of it and uh we did it that's not the easiest thing to do in the world you know so we, we had a good time doing it too so oh yeah, yeah it really came out great um let me just i, I see that we're running out of time so i i'll just want to ask you about this we all know especially as a canadian what happened in calgary and in canada looking back on all of that was it just time to move on and were there any moments where you woke up and said what did I do? Or was it more like, oh, okay, I can breathe now. I get to just go be Richie now. Um, what was that like? And- what do you think? <laughs> right? It was time, man. It was time. You know, and this, this is, you know, it's just, we weren't moving anywhere. Right. And I, I said to myself, man, this, this is one of the, this is, we got a bunch of great musicians and a bunch of stuff. We were just moving in different directions. And it was time. That's what I thought. And quite frankly, uh, you know, the touring schedule was so absurd. Uh, you know, even other big bands like U2 and Stones and stuff like that. They take two years off to have a life between these massive uh, excursions that we do, you know. And uh, we never did that. So, it, you know, basically, what are you going to say? I was burnt out. My daughter needed me to be home. I needed to be with my kids. There's a bunch of stuff that I needed, and it was just what it was. No, I don't regret it. I, you know, I've, it went down kind of crappy, but what are you going to do? Sometimes it's just got to be that way. Yeah, sometimes you just you just have to seize the day. But it really, it really. The people, you know, you got to understand. You have to understand something else. Okay, people don't understand the backstory. Just think about 31 years in a marriage to four other guys. A lot of stuff goes down. Nobody needs to talk about that. But there is a backstory, as in any relationship. So it's just not cut and dry where people go, whoo, that's what happened, you know. But right. I got too much class to talk about. I'm not going to get there. No, 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 no. We're not going to get to the crap. But, I mean, we, we, we know as fans over the years, after the New Jersey touring cycle, which was absolutely insane. I mean, what was it, like 230 shows and 300? I mean, whatever it was. It was 252, 252. Yeah, I, I, you know, you need you need to step back and breathe, and and I think as you get more successful, and you point out you two, and you point out the Rolling Stones, and even Paul McCartney, at some point, 
you do you do need to just breathe and live a little and I guess it can get frustrating not being able to sort of enjoy the labor. Well, you know what? That's, that, that, you know what? That's the way the songs come out. Right. Living life. You know, that's the way the songs come out. That's the way your feelings come out. That's the way you have, have the peace of mind to actually observe culture and other people and relate to that. I mean, that's imperative to me personally as a writer. I mean, I need to connect. Need to know what's going on with people and how they're feeling, wherever they are. Don't matter. You know, uh, it's, it's music is a very transcendental language where it defines it defies language actually. Yeah, it really does. And uh, of course, Radio Free America is out now. And I'll just finish on this because I, I know we're running out of time for a second or third album as they come out. Now that you've experimented with all the sort of different styles and put them on here, these fifteen tracks. Do you want to sort of go next album and say, okay, we're going to focus on just being blues or we're just going to focus on being more sort of country or we're going to focus more on rock? Or is it the next album will just be, listen, if it comes out like another one, like the, you know what I mean? Like you've experimented with all the different sounds. Do you want to sort of focus in on a different sound for the next album and be more specific? Or do you want to have that freedom? Not particularly at the moment for me, ask Gloria. You know, I think, you know, what we got now, is a very workable circumstance where we just people just have to get to know us. And if you just take a couple of those songs, it, we got another 10 already finished. So, and then there's 50 waiting. And we're writing more, we're writing day. more every day. So right. and, and some of the stuff that we're writing now, you know, we're proud of, you know, cause it's like, I don't know, it's a journey, you know, it's just, we're going to continually uh, like release music for people and hopefully they get our sound together, you know, because, um, we worked hard on it, so... Yeah, you really did. And it really is... Um, what would be the word for that? It's like an emotional album, because you, you really hear it, and you can feel... You can feel what you're, what you're singing. You can feel the, the emotions of it. It's, it's, it's incredibly well put together. Um, and so I'll, we are out of time. I'll, I'll finish with this, uh, Richie, just uh, the last one. Uh, speaking solely as a Bon Jovi fan, uh, Slippery When Wet... Why did you leave Edge of a Broken Heart off the album? It's such a great song. Sometimes, you know, uh, it actually went out to a movie soundtrack before the album was done. And we figured that we had the rest of the record finished. And so given that one, and they put it, yeah, it became, I don't know. Some, I, I forgot the movie, actually. So it was in some movie, yeah. Right. Uh, Richie, thank like you for... one of those pictures that are made at that time, uh, I'm trying to think what album, or what movie that was. Uh, I, I can't. Uh, Ori. Uh, something with the, it might be something with the Fat Boys or something. <laughs> oh, was it the the Disorderlies? Was that it? Could that have been That's it? it? That's it, right? Yeah. See, I, I told you That's I was it. a fan. Um, but I, I just want to finish on this. Then, Ori, uh, thank you for everything over the years. You've been very, very kind uh, to me. That your time in Alice Cooper was absolutely spectacular. The shows with you. Uh, were spectacular, and of course, uh, Richie, just, you know, God, how many, almost 40 years of just great music and the Bon Jovi stuff. I mean, it was my life, so thank you for that, too. So thank you for, for touching my life, both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, man. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much for the support. Thanks for the support, brother. Absolutely. Anytime. Cheers. Right. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. And a big thank you to uh, Richie Sambora and Orionthi. And I got to say, the uh, 15-year-old self in me 
Very excited. I mean, when you look back at some of those bands that affected my life, the Aerosmiths and the Kiss and the Metallicas, Bon Jovi is right in that pack. And to actually speak to somebody from Bon Jovi, uh, very exciting. And of course, Oriante, I knew from the days of Alice Cooper, and she was just always, always pleasant to be around. Just such a nice... What's the word? Do we say lady? Is that Bill? Bill, help me out. Is Bill uh, Bill Leverty? Welcome back. But help me out. Do we say lady? Is that is that is that derogatory? Yeah, you you, you, you preface that with the lovely and talented. And she truly is. I mean, she is just yeah. Out. And I'm talking not just as a guitar player, but as a person backstage. And when I've had a chance to meet her and stuff, it's just so incredibly nice and pleasant and 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 fun to be around. Anyway, great, great. Great having that chat, but Bill, since we're here, let us move on to Bad Wolves. We've got John from the Bad Wolves. Their new album is called Disobey. You can now go buy it, so please do. Um, But you back in the day, of course, you had your first album years and years ago. Talk to me about the challenges of getting, of you and Firehouse getting out your first album. What was that like? Because it's not the same marketplace. Um, what were some of the positive things you had and what some of the, some of the things that maybe now is better? Well, the positive thing things for us was that it was all very new to us and going out and playing and having people that that were just getting exposed to our music and to us individually uh was just mind-blowing uh to go, you know, get on a bus and then, you know, you're playing a gig in Salt Lake City somewhere, and uh, there's a bunch of people that show up. You know, it, what a feeling! So these guys, um, I got to hand it to them. It's really, really cool that they can all come from bands that are known already. Yeah, Snot, Devil so- Driver, God forbid. Yeah, a lot of those great metal bands. Is it? Do you think? As a seasoned veteran, right? Is that, is that the proper term, seasoned veteran? Do you think it's grizzled. easier grizzled? Is, is it easier? <laughs> was it easier in your day to get a band going with with tour support and record company support? Is it really that different, or are they sort of just doing what you guys were doing, but you know, twenty five years later? No, I think it was probably easier to get tour support right. back in the day, uh, in the in the olden days, I'll say. Um, and so I really commend them because they're they're DUI or DIY rather. Yeah, right. Do it yourself. They're doing it themselves. They're going to go out there. They've all got the experience of what it is, what it takes to get out there. They're all focused and wanting to do it. They all come from you know, having experience and all that. They've got some audiences amongst each one of them, and they're going to be able to get out there and and play shows. And that's what you got to do. You got to take it to the people. And the, and the only way to take it to the people these days is with your live shows. And so that that's what they're doing. And then and. You know, we we did it um, back in the day where we'd all hop in a van and drive for, you know, many hours and do a gig, and we still do it today. I mean, there are a lot of situations where we rent a van, we hop in that van, and we go. And um, that's what it's like to be a musician uh, these days, and um, and it's what it was like back in the in the good old days too. So right. it's a lot of hard work, but it's a lot of fun. And, and you know, and I'm going to tell you one thing here that you may not know of the Bad Wolves. They have a cover version of the Cranberry song "Zombie," oh, and cool. great they song. had yeah, it's a great song. They had invited uh, Dolores from the Cranberries to come and sing it, and the studio was booked, and the day. Or the day before that she was supposed to go in and cut her vocals for the band, she passed away. And the band released a single, and they are not taking any 
money on it. Any money that is raised from that song, they are donating to Dolores' children to make sure that they still have, you know. And I think that's just so very cool. That is just that so is very wonderful cause. And, and yes, it's very a human situation into something very that positive. At least has some somewhat of a silver lining, and, and yep. um, God bless them. I mean, that's wonderful. Yeah, and and I just commend them for doing that. And of course, the song went all the way to number one on the U.S. Uh, mainstream rock charts, uh, billboards, and uh, that just goes to show the power of a song and the power of a good gesture. The fact that they aren't selfishly you know, storing all the the nuts in their in their own backyard, and they're and they're going to share and share with her family is just uh, kudos to the band for being just great uh, great human beings. I mean, that's that's what we should be doing in in a sense. Anyway, so there you go. Um, yeah, that is huge. That is just huge. I'm blown away. Yeah, that's very kind. And so, uh, well, let, you know what? John actually talks about that during the interview. So let's get right into it. Here is John Berklin from the Bad Wolves. The new album is disobey and if you like your metal hard fast and fierce you definitely need to check out the bad wolves and here is the one the only john we are speaking with drummer john berklin of the band bad wolves the new album is disobey john a great great pleasure to talk to you pleasure to speak with you mitch how are you doing good good so let's get into this uh, this new album or the, this debut album you were, of course, in a in another band previously, and it's been a three, four years since then. Talk to me about getting together with the guys and starting a new band, and eventually what becomes a new brand, and just sort of building it up from the beginning. Yeah, um, okay, well, I guess it starts with me. Yeah, I left Devil Driver, and I left having already started this project, knowing that this was going to be my next move. Uh, where Musically, what that was going to be, I did not know yet. So I spent a lot of time writing different John styles, genres, <clears throat> what I was going to be happy with. And I'd say about two years into that process is when I met up with Tommy Vexed. And that's when the band really started taking shape. And his vocals, I mean, you know, because you really don't, don't know what something's going to be until vocals are on it. And when his vocals started coming together and his input on arrangements, Tommy really took my six-minute songs to three-minute songs. You know, that, that was what uh, he he helped me shorten down and, and strengthen my process. So, um, and that's so that was around 2015, maybe no, probably 2016 when I met up with Tommy, and things started taking off from there. And that's where it ended up, just about. Now, why was it such a slow burn? Were, were you very focused on creating the perfect song, or was it just it wasn't coming together the way you wanted it to? Um, why was it sort of a two-year process to get us to disobey in 2018? Well, it was, I mean, it was a four-year process, but it right. wasn't difficult. It was just figuring out what I wanted to do. Um, so it, was, it, was, it wasn't like... I still like a lot of the music that was written... Um, but it's just not for, for Bad Wolves. And until the, like I said, until Tommy came on board, you know, we just had, I had so many songs laying around. I just didn't really know what was going to be what. And until the singer comes on board, you don't really know what you really have. So, um, well, once he did, we realized we, you know, he's a really song, strong singer. So um, we 
kind of like committed to having most of the record be clean vocals. Um, and with exception of kind of connecting to our, our past of, of really heavy stuff, there's a good like three or four songs on there that have the screaming, you know? Yeah. You need clean vocals. Uh, talking about how you got together with Tommy, was that a, just a friend from, from the neighborhood kind of thing, or were there actual auditions where you said, okay, I need to find a vocalist for this project. I was in search of a vocalist for the project. Um, but I had known Tommy before that. Uh, we had toured together when he was in Snot. I had, think I met him briefly here and there when he was in Divine Hershey. So we were familiar and friends already. Uh, so it wasn't a, it wasn't a tryout situation. Um, I ran into him. I think it might have been my birthday party at the Viper Room. And we just kind of reconnected. And we, uh, I said, hey, let me send you some songs and see what you think. And it just it blossomed from there. And it really came out great. Um, let me take you back to, to when you were younger. Uh, the album from Metallica, and Justice for All, comes across your your lap, and, and, and you, you suck it in. You go, okay. Um, talk to me about the influence of that album and that moment of discovery where you went, yeah, this is what I want to do. I, I want to sound, or I want to, you know, Lars is my guy, and I want to play drums like that guy. Hey, I, I can kind of remember exactly where I was. Like, you know, I was in my bedroom. I used to, uh, I was sitting on my bunk bed, which became my drum set. <laughs> Pretty much, I would pull up a chair and set up on my pillows. Um, I don't know. I can't describe really what that is, but it was just like so immediate, like listening to it. Just got this is it. This is, I want to play drums and I want to do it now and I want to do it by playing Metallica songs. <laughs> and it's just like, it was like something spoke to me, you know? But what? But what was it? Because I mean, you do tell a story uh, that I've heard in the past where you you took out these rods from your shelves and you taped them up and you played on your pillows and your bed and and it was more than just oh here's an album. It, it really was something that touched you profoundly. Yeah, it was, and it's it's just music. That's what it does to millions of people. But for some reason, to me, it inspired me to play. Um, and you know, music has always been a big part of my life. Uh, you know, as a kid, it was pop music, whatever, whatever, whatever it was, it was, it, I was always really into it. But for some reason, when it crossed over into the musical side of Metallica, that just like, it was, it was like, I need to play music. I, I don't need just to, just to listen to it, you know? So, so then talk to and, me about, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And that's what I owe to Metallica, you know, like oh, the, the, the first time I met Lars, uh, that's what I thought. I was like, you're the, you know, it sounds cheesy, but you were the reason why I played music. Like, I, I didn't bore him with the story or anything, but it was just, it was very odd the way that I still think about that moment from time to time, how just direct it was. Metallica listening, boom, I'm going to do this. You know, it was, it was like uh, something just spoke to me. Yeah, it was definitely a, a one plus one equals uh, you playing drums. And of course, uh, Injustice uh, is going to be released, re-released in November as a deluxe box set. I think everybody's excited about. Um, but talk to me about your drumming style. How do you see yourself uh, in terms of drum style? Did you sort of just copy from Lars? Or tell me how you've developed into your own drummer and sort of what makes what you do good. Hmm. Well... <clears throat> You can listen to all what I've done so far, uh, anyone listening, and you kind of know what I've done. What makes me good was I think I never really cared to be the best. Um, I just cared about songs. And so I spent most of my time equally, besides playing drums, writing guitar. 
Um, I never tried to be good at guitar either. I just wanted to write songs. So it was a tool for me to get out things I heard in my brain. And uh, yeah, so I never quite focused on the discipline aspect, um, which has its positives and negatives. So for shifting to, to Bad Wolves, I kind of didn't really want to repeat myself. So I started taking lessons from Dave Elitch, who's played with Miley Cyrus and, um, geez, who else? Uh, Killer Be Killed, who's a metal rock band with the guys from Macedon and stuff. And played in a bunch of other, I'm forgetting, Justin Timberlake, stuff like that. Anyways, so he, he helped me. Uh, I just wanted to get out of the metal zone. So, um, area that I had been kind of stuck in and I didn't want to repeat myself. So he helped me a lot with, uh, studying the right rudiments to continue and find different pockets and holes. And I think it's night and day the way my drumming sounds with my previous projects to this one. Yeah, it really is. Uh, we of course have the big hit, uh, your, your cover of the cranberries zombie. Talk to me about going there. Cause when you, when you think about metal and the metal thing, one would think, well, it would be make more sense to cover Megadeth, or it would make more sense to cover Kiss. Or uh, talk to me about how you decided to cover the Cranberries uh, track, and then, of course, having the original or having the singer come onto it, which of course didn't happen. But uh, talk to me about that decision and and using that song or recording that song. Um, it was Tommy's decision, kind of idea, and so when we started, it was like kind of we didn't really have like a a mindset to do covers. Uh, so, but when he threw out that idea, everyone was like, all right, yeah, cool. Let's record it. See how it goes. Uh, it wasn't something that we had big ideas for or anything like that. And so, but it came out really good, really good. Tommy had great ideas on how to like make the verses unique, uh, different from the original. So we got excited about it. So I'm like, yeah, you know, we'll put this on the record. And when we got signed to 11, seven records, there was a, the president, Alan Kovac, and some other people I'd had relationship with Dolores through previously managing her. So they sent her the track. She liked it, really liked it, and actually wanted to sing on it. So, and unfortunately, she passed away the day we were going to do that. And then there, I think everyone knows the story from there. So that's kind of like the zombie story on our side in a nutshell. And, and we all know it's just doing going really well out there for the song and i think it's a great tribute to her yeah i really do and of course uh, you mentioned alan kovac do you, do you ever sit with alan and have him tell or does he ever tell you motley Crue stories about how it was back in the day uh i don't sit down with alan and have him <laughs> tell me motley Crue stories uh um you know i've i've I know everything about Alan and what he's done. It's it's crazy, but uh, now I tend to not bother him with uh, wanting to hear reminiscent stories. You know, well, maybe I'll give him a call then. Um, so, so, talk to me a little bit about that decision in 2014 to to pack up and leave Devil Driver. Now, of course, we know Des was going to run off and do Cold Chamber. Was that the catalyst where you said, okay, if he's going to leave, I, I'm going to leave too, or was it just it just wasn't working anymore musically, financially, whatever it was. Just it was time to sort of move on. A couple things. Uh, it was to me musically was it, it, it hit its peak, and it was just kind of a, there was no really well, where else to go with it. With me, I was kind of the main songwriter there. Now maybe the other guys could step up to 
to the plate after I left and feel refreshed about doing stuff, but I didn't. Um, I also, the way he handled his transition to Cole Chamber was very poor um, and very uninformed where he had led us down a path believing in doing a new record where we weren't. So, and he dropped that us in a day and said, cool, you guys are, you take three years off. We're doing this. And so it, I was like, okay, well, if you're going to take the band that lightly with us that lightly, then I'll take it pretty lightly and I'm just going to leave, you know, and it had been a long time coming anyway. So, um, it was kind of just for the best. That's the best way to put it. Yeah. And, and it really was for the best because I'm so much more happier and, or, you know, I'm very proud of what I did before, but I'm very happy where I've landed. Yeah, so 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 then okay, let, let's get back to Bad Wolves in a sense then, because you have landed here. You are the founder. You are the drummer. You are the songwriter. Uh, talk to me about the musical vision you want for the band. Is this something that you just want to stay heavy all the time, or do you see yourself more as like a, a David Bowie or a U2, where after after you know album after album you might want to reinvent yourself you might want to experiment because now that you're the boss in, in a sense um you do have that freedom so so talk to me about how you sort of see the band moving forward past 2018 into 2019 and beyond i see our heavier stuff getting heavier and i see our ex- experimental stuff getting much more experimental i see us trying everything and under the sun and I think with the debut, if you haven't heard it, Mitch, it's it's like it already expresses a bit of that. Now, when I say experimental, I don't mean in the very odd, like Nine Inch Nails, Deep Rabbit Hole, kind of like, you know, remix album or something like that. But we will always stay focused in on like a songwriting aspect of delivering hooks, because that's what we like. And I love Tommy's voice. And, and we write writing catchy music. So, um, but I think you'll find record two and three and four is just going to keep expanding off. Um, you know, cause we have melodies that are hooky, but they're not quite, they're a little to the left and a little to the right. They're not something you can totally put your finger on. Uh, Oh, that's totally, uh, you know, just cookie cutter rock, you know? So we always put our little stamp of style on everything. So, um, I think our rock, uh, you know, octane, that kind of, uh, serious radio and, and major radio stuff, we're always going to try and have a little bit of a twist on it. So it's not, uh, so just dead center, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. And in fact, I do have the album in front of me and, and I did have a chance to, to listen to it. And, uh, there are the songs that sort of really stand out. Of course, the singles, uh, toast of the ghost and learn to live, but it, it really is a journey, a musical journey. If you if you listen to all sort of sixteen tracks that are, that were made available to me, it, it really is this musical journey. And is that something that you set out to do, to not just take the listener on, you know, the sort of straight ahead route? You really wanted them to to experience sort of the ups and downs and 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 go on a journey as they listen to the album. Yeah, I just I think the main focus was just not to repeat myself. So. Um... The worst thing you can do, and I've watched it happen, and I was always in my brain as this record was getting written, is, you know, oh, this guy from this band now doing this sounds just like what he was doing before, but worse. Like, you know, <laughs> um, that's really just what was on my brain. So um, I know for a fact if I just kind of wrote the same style, it's what, this whole thing is different tuning, different different guitars, different everything. So. 
Um, be different was my motto. And also speed was not something of my concern, even though there are some fast songs. We, uh, I didn't really have any interest of trying to outdo what's going on in metal, um, which I think gives you a sense of relief to be original. Like, and then originality kind of comes your way when you're not trying to be a competitive writer. You're just trying to write. You know? And you have said also that, that the album does it is a little more commercial in certain aspects, almost apologetically. Is that, is that a concern from the fan base that they might conf- find it too commercial? Because there are big melodies and big hooks on this. There are great lyrics. There are great vocals. There are just great drum passes. Um, you know, what's wrong making a commercial album? Mm, what's wrong? Uh, in the metal world, it can backfire you. Like because metal's built on not being popular. That's where the underground lives and survives. But this is not that band, so I don't care. And I don't think anyone else in this band cares because smiles on our faces were happening when we were writing this. And um, and when we listened to the final product, and we're not trying to please anybody but ourselves, you know? So it's it, it's working thus far. So Yeah, and, and I, I don't know if, if the metal world is that offended by commercialism. I, I mean... You know, we spoke about Metallica before. You look at the Black Album, pretty sure it defined their entire career from what they've done. You know, it really elevated them to that next level. Um, The first single, Learn to Live, came out almost six months ago. Uh, Talk to me about that strategy of putting stuff out way ahead of the album's official release. Um, Is that a risk to take that it, it, it might be forgotten by the time the album comes out or that... You know, just talk to me about sort of the marketing strategy and the sort of the rollout of the album. Hmm. That's interesting because we were signed because of the success from our first show and Learn to Live. Right. Um, so the marketing strategy was a worry of mine. Like, okay, but we can't, we couldn't just sit in a, in a non-existent medium and hope that everything would just work out. So we had to take that first step and release a song. Yes, it was a concern of ours. Okay, what are we going to do next? Well, let's see how this goes first before we decide what we do next. So, um, but then after we did, uh, we had re- filmed a little lyric video for Toast of the Ghost. And around that time was when we got signed. So we saved that for 11.7 to release first. Um, and it was kind of like uh, we chose that song because it was, one of, it doesn't have much screaming, but it's still reflective of, of metal. And, and, uh, but it also has, it's the first song that everyone heard that, you know, it's not to learn to live with metal screaming throughout the whole thing. You know, it's blast beat courses and very slow melodic verses, but it's all clean singing. So we were excited to put that out. And then, uh, the plan after that kind of then involves 11, seven and there you know, release of Zombie. We we all agreed to donate all the proceeds to Dolores' kids with the release of Zombie. And with that success of that song, they've, you know, just really kept on a marketing plan of, okay, well then we're going to go have this song out here. Deirdre. And, you know, so almost a year is already planned out, you know? It really is. And, of course, um, let's finish with the, uh, the tour. You're going to be heading out with uh, Five Finger Death Punch. And uh, Breaking Benjamin, uh, and of course, nothing more. Uh, talk to me about that tour coming up this summer, and um, just what can fans expect? And of course, you'll be there with Jason Hook, good old Canadian boy. Yes, <laughs> um, he's a sweetheart. Um, yes. What can fans expect? They can expect 
a probably a 25 to 30 minute set of us opening the show, giving it, giving our best tunes and, and going for it really hard, very quickly. Um, you know, it's going to be an outdoor show. So I think almost 99% of those venues are outdoors. So, uh, get there early, come check us out. And, uh, I think for as far as Canadian dates go, I think we're there on the 8th of August. Possibly. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. I'd... Or I know it's like it's a uh, well. I'd have to look it back up. Sorry. No, but, no uh, there is Canadian. There is a Canadian date there. <laughs> yeah, I would it imagine is, it is Toronto. Yeah, because everything is in Toronto. That that is, and and of course, uh, you do have Zoltan uh, managing you. So so just quickly, how did that sort of come about? Was it? just the fact that uh, he was looking for management or was it convenience? And how, how did sort of the hookup with, with Zoldan come about? Um, I had known him for a long time. However, this came about through Tommy and his relationship with him. They had been hanging out. Now, has he been looking for, he had been speaking to Tommy about, and our lawyer, uh, Eric German, about like, yeah, you know, I wouldn't mind, finding a band, the right band, manage them, like, you know. And Tommy had been hanging out with him around that same time. So I think, you know, Tommy was hanging out with him on his yacht and presented his band, you know, our band, with, uh, I think it was the Learn to Live video. So this is what we just did, you know. And I think Zoltan was pretty interested. We released it. It gained more traction. He saw the reaction it was getting, and I think he officially came on board shortly after that. And through there, he was, uh, you know, and still has been doing a, a fucking kick-ass job. <laughs> yeah, he really has. And uh, I, I, I checked up the date. It is August 20th at the uh, Budweiser stage in uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. The one and only Canadian date. Hopefully we'll see you in Montreal at some point. Um, but hey, there you go. Yes, we will be, uh, we are doing a headliner in June, which I think announced today at some point i don't know but i can't say anything about it if it hasn't so there might be i don't know there could be a couple dates on there there so everyone just keep your 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 eyes and ears peeled for any more canadian dates yes and uh, john great pleasure and uh, of course uh, best of luck with the new album the the 16 tracks that, that i had a chance to to preview just, I just loved it. It was just this great in-your-face metal, like like the old days, in a sense, for me. And, uh, you know, hey, great stuff. I, I'm glad you like it, man. That's really cool. You got the whole 16, huh? So some of those are, are B-side tracks, some of the last couple there. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's a lot to take in. So I'm glad you got a chance to check it all out. It is. It is. Uh, I'm trying to think. Of, so, so which ones are the B-sides? I've got all the way down to I Swear, Pacifico, Blood and Bone, Shapeshifter. Yeah. Blood and Bones, Pacifico, and I Swear are the uh, the B-sides. Oh, look at that. I got the Deluxe Edition. There you go. You got the Deluxe Edition. Yeah, cool. Well, thanks for uh, diving into it. And, uh, yeah, you seem to know about a lot about metal, my path, and everything. So thanks for being a supporter of what we do, man. That's really cool. Yeah, I really am. Listen, I, I've, I've interviewed Devil Driver in the past. I, I believe I've met you, I think probably at a heavy Montreal or something like, or somewhere. And I did want to ask you about your, your Vic Firth endorsements and all that. I, I don't know if you still have a couple of minutes about that, but just great gear. And sure. yeah, you know, listen, I, I've, I've done the metal thing for 25. I mean, I interviewed Gene Simmons when I was 11 and 
I'm not 11 anymore. So it's been a long, long time. Um, yeah, but okay, let's, let's quickly then on Vic Firth before we wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up. Uh, just talk to me about that. I know that you weren't looking for an endorsement. They came to you. They came to a show and they said, hey, we want you and you're a big endorser of, of their products. You you talk greatly about the tape that they use on your drumsticks and stuff. So so talk to me about all of that and just what it is to have, what does it mean to have an endorser and and what do they bring to your playing? Because obviously the gear you choose helps make you the player that you are. Correct. Um, are you talking about with Vic Firth in particular? You know, it's just well all of that all of product. it. It's, it's, yeah, um, I just recently made a switch from um, Apex. I, I hmm. you know, Great unfortunately drum. about two years ago, Joe Joe Hibbs. Uh, who was my main kind of A&R relationships guy there. Uh, he passed away. And uh, after that, I just kind of like, you know, with the transition I was in, I kind of just kept to myself and I kind of lost touch with the company a little bit. Um, great. Still a great product, but it switched over to um, DWPDP, um, which is like, you know, right up the street from me in Oxnard. And they approached me about possibly doing something. And I was very thrilled about it. So, I'm officially with them now. I haven't told anybody that yet. So there's a nice exclusive for you. And uh, having a good relationship with uh, your gear people is just super important to me. Um, and they kind of get the vision of what I'm doing. And they've been looking for a rock artist to kind of feature with the PDP new drum line stuff. So we're going to be doing that. And I'm going to kind of be on their campaign of promoting that, that side of uh, their gear storage. I mean, their gear storage, that side of their, uh, things they have to offer you know um, yeah. and i switched over to pdp i mean a uh, ddum hardware too so i love their hardware i just feel a lot more comfortable with their hardware than i so it's um everything's great there and it's a big change you know going from to new pedals too with the dw 9000s and it's uh, i i was concerned you know i'll see if we can if i can play them and yeah, threw them out there one day. I was like, yep, yeah, sure, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, there's a great product over there. Uh, and Vic Firth, I've been with since 2004. I haven't stopped. Minel since 2004. And those people I know and love, you know, so. And if you get a little stale and you want to mix it up, they got anything you can imagine you want to try out. So it's, it's those where I feel like I'm there to stay, you know. Yeah, such a great company. And and I promise I'll finish on this, but uh, Lars once uh, quipped, uh, our, our, our famous Lars from Metallica, that if he knew he would still be doing this 30 years later, he would have played slower in the early days. Is that something that also as you, you've moved on and you moved on to Bad Wolves and, you, and you're doing, and, and again, commercial sound, but, you know, more rounded sound. Is that part of the concern also as you get older that physically it might be tougher to play? you know, the blast beats and the, and the, the heavy, heavy stuff. And, and it's maybe good to sort of start transitioning into a more rounded melodic sound. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, no, I know you're saying you're kind of nicely putting it. Like, are you going to get weak and chill? <laughs> no, but I mean, we, uh, listen, we all, we all slow down and, and Lars had a, I think it was a funny point. He said, I would have played slower if I had known I'd be doing this 30 years later, which I thought was yeah. a great quote. I may play slower here and there but it's more from my perspective of trying to do things differently uh, right i will tell you this bad wolves it may not sound like it but it's a very different 
technique for me and bad wolf stuff at this point in my life is much, much harder to play than anything I've done in the past. <laughs> um, yeah. because it's a completely different feel. It's, 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 it's not so linear. It's not just, you know, one, two, three, four. There's a lot of, lot more going on. It may not sound like it, but it is. Um, and it's due to my lessons with Elitch, like I had mentioned before. So that's great stuff. Uh, John, great pleasure. And, uh, hopefully we'll see you on the road soon. And, uh, Anytime, uh, you know, let's do a, let's do a part two at some point. Hey, yes, you have uh, you have my blessing. Call my people. I'm always here, ready for you. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. All right, and bye, uh, great bye, great you. debut album, Disobey. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And a big thank you to John of Bad Wolves. The new album is Disobey. It's out now. Do yourself a favor and go check it out. And while you're checking out stuff, let us check out or let us check back in with Bill Leverty of Firehouse. Of course, head over to Leverty.com for all your Leverty needs. Is that how we say it? All your Leverty needs? Is that is that? Is that <laughs> I pro- love it, dude. Thanks. Is, that, is that the proper tagline for that? <laughs> Couldn't be better. Couldn't be better. <laughs> Uh, so there you go. Now, let let us talk George Thorogood because that's that's the sort of the 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 bookend on the sort of powerhouse episode. Um, I'm assuming, maybe rightly so, that you're probably a great George fan. He's from Delaware. You're from Virginia. He, he you've got that sort of blues rock thing in your soul, and 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 George, of course, delivers it perfectly. Right? You're a fan. Oh. Without question, uh, when I think about iconic rock and roll singer guitar players, George Thorogood is in the top ten. Um, he he could be in the top five. I, I really haven't gotten him out, you know, on the list. But he is such an incredibly dynamic performer, and he's 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 masterful. I, I mean, I I saw him open up for the Stones in 1981. Wow. And he blew everybody away. I mean, I'm not saying he blew the Stones away, but the well, audience that, that, was That's very, floored. very hard to do. But, but when you're yeah. at a Stones concert and you remember the opener and they made an impression on you, that means that they were good. I got to tell you, he made Mick and Keith earn their gig money that night. Yeah. Um, his band was on fire. He was on fire. He had everybody in the palm of his hand and every note of his guitar playing gave me goosebumps. He could break it down and play so soft and then play with so much energy. And, and the guy was just brilliant. He had such energy on stage and, you know, he's got all those hits, you know, and he even played songs I'd never heard before. He, he had a good set length and he left everybody in that crowd breathless. Yeah, and when you look back at the catalog, whether it's a cover song or an original, whether it's One Bourbon, One Scotch, One Beer, Bad to the Bone, I Drink Alone, Who Do You Love? I mean, those songs, uh, his versions, the originals or the covers, are very iconic. There are so many movies that have used Bad to the Bone, so many commercials. When you hear that opening riff, I mean, you're a guitarist. When you hear that, that I mean, doesn't that just send chills up your spine? It's the perfect riff. And, um, you know, I just remember when I was in a cover band in my early, early years, and that song was on jukeboxes, we were setting up, you know, and they were elderly men who were sitting at the bar 
who would get up and start dancing to that song. And that's the kind of impact that that song had on people in bars back in the day. And it was, it, it just made me open my eyes and go, wow, if I could only write something half that good, you know, so I'm still working on it. Yeah. Well, you, you've got a couple of songs there at the uh, Leverty.com for all your Leverty needs. See, I'm going to use that every, every time now. You've got uh, Memorable and Love is Like a Song. And, of course, it is a two-for-one. You you spend a buck, you get two songs. So I do suggest and recommend that fans go check that out. But back back to Bill uh, – not back to Bill, but back to George, I should say. Uh, his last album, 2017, Party of One, such a great concept. In fact, I'm going to suggest that you give it a shot one day. But he does everything. It is a very stripped-down, bare-bones, him, guitar, voice. There are some other instruments that he'll that he'll throw in there, but it's mo- mainly uh, vocal and guitar. And it's just naked, and it's it's heartfelt, and it's emotional. It's just it's powerful, powerful stuff. And so, great album. I do expect fans to check that out. But uh, before we get to George, um, when he heads out uh, in shows, ticket sales. One dollar from each ticket sold will go to LLS, which is the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And he's also got a T-shirt that says Destroyers with a Blood Drop. And, of course, 100% of the proceeds of those shirts go to the LLS as well, uh, all in honor of his father-in-law. And I just have to say, you know, kudos to George you know, between them and the Bad Wolves, uh, we have an episode of people that just get humanity right. You have to give back. You have to contribute. You have to make a difference. And perhaps I'm speaking out of out of sorts, but what, what do you think, Bill? I mean, is, is it is it crazy just to give back once in a while? Oh, I think it's just it's awesome. I, I'm those guys, you know, that you've mentioned. They've they've really uh, they're they're awesome people. And uh, like I said before in our last uh, segment, uh, God bless them. I mean, they're, it's just what, what a great, great thing stuff. to do. And, and, and the, the, the conversation with George, by the way, uh, goes on for about 40 minutes. I and mean, we cover everything, but I'll just read this quote. It said, uh, my awareness of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society began years ago when a close family member was diagnosed with leukemia. In the wake of such devastating news, I felt compelled to lend a hand, and I am honored to join the LLS family in their fight to cure blood cancers. Someday is today, signed George Thurgood. And that, to me, uh, speaks volumes for the kind of man that George is. So uh, kudos to him, and uh, kudos to you, Bill, for for joining me today. Always, always appreciated, and uh, wow. And that, by the way, how was that that Stone show? I mean, what wasn't wasn't that great? Oh. <laughs> Back in it 81. was incredible. I realized after seeing them, I've only seen them once live, and that was it. And that, uh, you know, how they are the the greatest rock and roll band of all time. Yeah, they really uh, are. Uh, and, and but George Thurgood came out and kicked major ass. Yeah, he held his own, and to hold your own against Mick Jagger is no small feat. So let, let's get to the man who could who can go toe to toe with with Mick Jagger, the one, the only, personal friend, George. Thurgood. We are here in Ottawa with George Thurgood. Uh, George, pleasure to have you back. Always great to have you in this part of the world. Um, you know what? Let me. We, you you do have a show. This is like your fortieth year playing Canada. So talk to me about coming to Canada and what it's like because it's been forty years of crazy, crazy fans, a lot of passion. Um, tell me some of those those great Montreal moments and, and 
Canada moments? Well, the uh, the experience we had in Montreal was just so unique. Uh, the club we played, the El Casino, the Casino, whatever it was called, was uh, an experience I still talk about to this day. It was right. in '78. We were hauling our own equipment in those days. We had um, very minimum equipment. Um, and we pulled up, and the, there was a line around the block, and we figured that we were at the wrong place. Right. And we said, well, who are all these people that are here to see? And we had to elbow our way in, haul our own equipment up there, set it up to a sound check. So we did the first show, sold out. Second, the next night was sold out, as the next night was too. But after the first show, there was at least a half a dozen, maybe ten or more people. Um, and they weren't drugged out or drunk kids. They were adults, and they wouldn't leave. They wouldn't <laughs> leave the room. And the, the club owner went down, speaking in French-Canadian, saying, you have to leave. This, this room has been sold out for two or three months, and you, you have to go. Right. They started putting money on the table, so we're not leaving. <laughs> I said, well, wait a minute. And then, and then the club owner, I said, well, did you clear? Because people are waiting in the street for the second show. The second show. So well, we can't, we don't want to call the police. I mean, I don't so the clover said, would you go up and speak to him? I said, I don't speak French-Canadian. I can't even speak Canadian. So I went down there, pleaded with him. No, we're not leaving. Not leaving. So they let him stay. And they paid extra money and stood off in the corner, and they still let the second crowd in. Uh, Mitch, it's the first time in my life I ever witnessed uh, <laughs> that I was trying to talk people into leaving and not sure. watching us play. Right. Please don't stay. Go yeah, away. Exactly. No, they wouldn't have it. And they were very serious about it. I say, you understand, right? No. I was like, Excuse me? And not, not like a bunch of drunks. you got to throw a drunk out of the place. That happens. But no, not in this case. And we only knew ten songs. We didn't even know that. And we're going to play them again. The second show. What do you want from me, man? And we, and we started coming back, and we've been coming back ever since. And the reception in their own way in other cities in Canada was, was similar. This, this was just a unique thing. Um, but we've come here in the dead of winter, played in Kitchener, they don't have a record out. Doesn't matter. No matter. I mean, January in, in Kitchener, two nights in a row. We've done places like that, cold, and then the Canadians just doesn't bother them. So um, we were even made honorary uh, citizens of Thunder Bay by the by the uh, city council and the mayor gave us a official. You are now honorary citizens of this town. So we got that going for us. So I said, gee. Why, you know, we like I said, once sometimes you would leave Montreal, we'd be playing there, and we'd leave to go play other places, Vancouver, Toronto, Ottawa, whatever. We'd say, well, we, we got to leave. And they'd say, no. <laughs> I'd say, yeah, but we have to leave. And they'd say, why? I'd say, you should stay here. I said, but we've already been here. Said, Still stay here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, mean, I just, I never experienced anything like this. You know, it's not like, see you next year, see you in two years. No. Stay. Now, those were the early days in 78. How important has Canada been over these 40 years for the band in terms of record sales and in terms of just being able to come up in here and tour? I mean, is it one of those places that has sort of put you on the map and, and helped make the career? Or is it just a place, another place you come and play? No, it isn't. I'll tell you, because it's tricky when an act leaves their country. It's tricky right. when you go to other markets, you go to other places. There are certain areas in the world that don't have radio. Right. Classic radio. Uh, there are places that just don't have shows, so it's not worth it to go there. It's all different. Canada, for us, has expanded as the years go on for other cities and other venues that have us play. Uh, and it wasn't like some places, they said, well, we didn't, not that we didn't want you guys, but there was no venue for you to play here. 
And as the time went on, um, it was I'd been coming here regularly, like I say, since '78, and often all I coming back, and it was always great, and it was always this. But it was in 2008 when we came that I really hit me and said, "You really got something here." I said, "I've never experienced Canada like this before. This is the cities, the response, the venues." I said, "I am really enjoying myself here." So I said. Let's get it, do it again in two years. It can't be that good. And it was better. Yeah. And then we said, all right, I'm, I'm doing the acid test. Take me back in 2012. It cannot be any better. And it was. So now I don't even ask. I'm afraid to ask. You should, yeah. <laughs> I said, I'm not even going to open my mouth. I'm just coming back. Talk to me about that, though, because it seems to me from the fan perspective, my perspective, that you're playing larger venues, more important festivals, then the 80s, you've actually gained popularity up here. Is that, is that fair to say? I would have to say that. I would. Yeah, uh, because sometimes the venues aren't necessarily bigger or whatever, but they are better. Right. More quality. Right. Really quality places. Um, and things are expensive in Canada. People pay a lot of money. They want to go to a really good place. They don't want to go to a dump. And our fans are now getting into their 50s, some of them in their 60s. So they have families, they have jobs. Yeah. And their energy level isn't what it was when they were 20. So every gig has to be very special. And the promoters and club owners are very, uh, very hip to that. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're aware of what the fans have to go through to do this. This is a rough country to get around in. This is, this is like New York, we walk across the block. And people, this is a big country. It's a long way. It's a huge country. And, it, it is. And sometimes the people who route the tours will put like Montreal and Vancouver in the same week on a, on a bus, and you go, we're a bit bigger than they that. Don't that. They don't get that. <laughs> uh, they don't get that. I said, no, no, there's lots of places in between. It's, between. They, they don't... Um, I said, well, if the United States is 3,000 miles, it's 4,000 this way. That's, a, that's, a, that's an extra 500 on both sides. That's a lot of mileage. Yeah. So you've got to put in some other places for us to play here. Yeah. It's not that we're just say, I only want to do three cities and get out, get out of here. That isn't the case. Find more places. And our band, who does not mind traveling, and we don't mind traveling at night, um, that's how we prefer things. A lot of bands said, oh, it's too long, it's too far, it's the, the travel's too heavy. I said, but it's worth it. Mitch, and it's best to travel at night. Listen to me. People say, but it's so far. And I like to say this, and this reading quote me. The road to a friend's house is never too far. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, in fact, let me talk about that uh, travel. 1981-82, the 50-50 tour. Mm -hmm. 50 states, 50 nights. In fact, that ended up being one fifty-one shows. Mm, yeah, but the nation's capital. Yeah, the nation's capital in a checkered cab, if I'm not mm. mistaken. Talk to me. I mean, was it just a, a publicity stunt, and then it got media traction? You said, "Oh shit, we sort of got to do this now," or was it like, "No, I don't care if the media covers it. We're going to do this because that's how you sort of build your your your." That's how you get the the, the engine going and the and the, the band. We going. just thought it was something interesting to do. You know, the person who drove us said, uh, why don't you play every state the next time you play? You, you eliminate some of them. I said, yeah, we do. And he said, why don't you do them all? And I said, okay. So we set it up. And after like four days into it, he said, gee, it's really good. You're going to do all 50 in a row. And I said, isn't that what you meant? And he said, no, I just meant you do all 50. You can take a couple of days off. And so I'm like, now you tell me. Could have done it 100 Now days. you tell me. But I'm glad, you know, I, hey, let me tell you something. We tried to squeeze Canada in there. Didn't work. Didn't work. We tried. <laughs> But talk to me about that complication, because 
I just don't see that as being feasible in this day and age with the marketplace and blah, 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 and booking clubs. I mean, how did you get people in Wyoming and people in all these sort of smaller states to open up and say, yeah, we've got a venue for you. How, how do you route that? How do you organize that? It, it's, it's baffling to me how, because you pulled it off. Well, Only part, to pull it off. we got to also p- think of something in, in certain states like uh, Montana or Wyoming, certain place like that, North Dakota. They're very sparse places. Right. There might be only two towns in the major cities in those states. Right. And they may not have a bar open past Well, eight. yeah, but the, we would go into a small town and because they don't see anything or they don't see stuff very much and it would be advertised. We picked your town. Well, we picked your town because of the routing. You know, which made sense. But to the people living there, they felt it was special, which it was. Which it was. So we got great response in some of these places. Now, the East Coast is very easy to get from Boston to Rhode Island, from Rhode Island to Connecticut. You know, that's like, all those things are like an hour drive. That, that was easy. And like I say, some of the places we went to, um, they were just thrilled to have a rock show coming through their city, which some of the towns had a population of maybe 3,000 people, you know, and they, they found a place for us to play. They set it up for us. So and we were welcome just about everywhere we went. It we did Hawaii, too. And yeah, we started there. We started <laughs> yeah. in Hawaii. You know, we went to Alaska and then flew into Portland, Oregon, and took it from there. The the Bad to the Bone album came out after that tour. Yeah. Was it mostly written on that tour? Was, was, the, was the tour the inspiration as you're driving through all these sort of canvases of, of cityscapes? Did, did it sort of inspire you, or are they sort of not related at all, whereas... There was a little bit of it. You know, it was a little bit of it. I wanted to... Uh, we played um, with the Stones in the Jay Giles Band, mm-hmm. and I noticed when the uh, Stones would do the intro to uh, Honky Talk Women or the intro to uh, Brown Sugar yeah. or Start Me Up, and Jay Giles would do the intro to Love Stinks, they got an immediate response from the audience. Huge, Great huge. So I said, that's what you need. You need a song like that to get people's attention. As soon as you go, wow. Well, well. So if you don't come up with something, a song you can hang your hat on. Yeah. Five, ten years from now, people will just go, throw in the stories. I kind of remember them. What that band was, they were kind of good at playing Chuck Berry or something. See, that's what I was afraid of. I didn't want that to happen. So I was trying to put together a signature riff. The title in itself, I, I was very fond of, of lyrics by people like Bo Diddley. You know, who do you love is kind of tongue-in-cheek band. Of course, the lyrics to uh, Jumpa Jack Flash, very very flashy, very exotic, very masculine. You know, um, I wanted something in there to um, I said because nobody's doing that. And by the time I got to the recording or time at that when we were doing it, a lot of things had already been done. There were no things to say, well, I'll do this. Well, Tom Waits already did that. Jefferson Airplane already did that. I said, what's Bo Diddley's thing? He thinks he's the baddest guy on the planet. So I'm going to go for that. I want to go there and just see what happens right. with this tune. And t- trust me, it didn't take off right away. It was just, uh, just another song in the show. People liked it. But then about eight years ago, they had a thing called Classic Rock Radio, which was created in your country and our country. Once that happened, in at least 50% of those stations, on the, uh, the blueprint, the bottom line of the songs they, they started with first was Whole Lot of Love, which is still on the radio, Jumpin' Jack Flash, Rockin' Me Baby, which rules the airline. I mean, it's on every day. And they threw Bad to the Bone in there. Yeah. So they put it in people's minds that Bad to the Bone was a classic. 
because they were hearing it on in that. Um, what am I trying to say, Mitch? Help me out. They were hearing it. That was it was almost psychological. Their mental jukebox. Exactly. But they were telling you they were dictating to you what really is a classic. Well, of course. And and I said. But the oh. media always dictates. <laughs> Well, don't they have a television show called Turner Classic Movies? Yes, of course. Okay, now someone who who's never seen Casablanca, they go, oh, that's a classic. Then they'll show maybe um, Die Hard by Bruce Willis. But the young people, the older people say, well, that's not a classic, Casablanca is. But the young people who have never seen either of them, they're both classics. They're both classics, right. You see, because people are dictating to them, you know, what what is. So that was the big break with that tune. They got that thing on there. And then after a while, they had radio shows called that. You know, they had, it was it was just that that's what really kicked it off for us with that tune. With that tune, we were already and doing that album. we were already doing too good with bourbon, scotch, and beer. Moving on over, they were being played on the radio often. And who do you love snuck in there? Bad to the Bone came out. Um, like I said, it was eight years we were playing it, and it was okay. Nobody booed. People liked it, but when it got on that in that format, right. I should say that's and and everybody was doing it at the same time. It was like one station did it, then they said, okay, we will too. Everybody said, oh, yeah, it's got all the ear makings of a classic. I said, I'll take it. That's what I want. Who doesn't want to grow up to be the next Ray Charles? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not an embarrassment to me. Trust me. Uh, can you imagine? It's been 36 years since that, that album time. Um, Party of One, the new album. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me about this concept. It's, it's just you <laughs> and the instruments and the voice and the songs. And that's it. Mm. Well, it was long overdue because when I first started, I played alone. I didn't have a band, but I was thinking about it. Right. And I said, I, I, if I'm going to do this, I should be recording a solo record now. Right. Like everybody else did. Uh, everybody, south, everybody south side on acoustic. Dylan, Springsteen, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the Birds, Mamas and the Papas, they mm-hmm. all do that. You know, John, Sebastian, they start out as an acoustic act. And I said, then I'll move on to what, the next level. But that didn't quite work out. Plus, I didn't have a record company. <laughs> right. I didn't have anybody. So I said, well, I, I can't play acoustic anymore. I just can't do it. I wasn't that good anyway. I mean, sitting down, playing three or four songs at a party, entertaining a whole audience Very by yourself different. for an hour, hour and a half, alone, <sighs> that's hard. That's, there's only one Taj Mahal. Right. Okay. And I'm not it. Right. So when I got the electric guitar and the drums and all, I said, oh, yeah, now we're, doing, now now we're getting somewhere. Yeah. But we just kept putting it off with Rounder, and some of the record labels weren't, weren't interested in that. Excuse me. And as time went on, Rounder and I would get in touch with each other and said, you know, still never got around to doing that acoustic record. Well, lo and behold, as time went on, Rounder went from here to here to yeah. here to here. Now they're a major force. They're a big player now. Yeah. And when they said, you know, we'd still like to do that record, I said, you're a hundred times bigger than when I started with you. And we're not doing too bad either. So maybe this is the time to do it. So that's what... That's what was behind that project. And Scott, who's the man- manager, I mean, the president, was um, very enthusiastic about it, helped us out, sending us tunes. And he was very patient about it. It took me, a long, took me about a year and a half to finally get it done. Right. Because I had to stop, go on the road with the band, do other things on my hands, find some more material. Oh, this song's not working. It's not as easy as people think. And he was patient. He said, no, I can't rush you. It's going to be ready when it's ready. He said, I'd rather wait longer for it to be better. Then putting it out, it's just okay. There's no rush. There's no rush. No rush. Talk to me about the challenge, though, because you have the drums, you have the electric guitar, you have a band behind you, and now it's just you, friend, for the lack of a better word, naked. You're Mm -hmm. just there. Artistically, though, what kind of challenge was that? Did you... 
was it something that you were like excited for? And it's like, man, this is great. I, mm-hmm. I'm discovering a new tone and a new mm-hmm. voice and a new. Or was it like, man, I, I can't wait to the, can't wait to get back to the band here. Where, where, where are my boys? It was more like this, Mitch. It was like it wasn't a challenge artistically. It was a challenge physically to get my hands because I'd been playing this for so long. And playing Bad to the Bone, Who Do You Love for So Long, I had to go back into time and teach my hands to do what I was doing 40 years ago. And that's impossible. It's like going back to the co- closet and putting on a pair of shoes you haven't right. worn since high school. Right. All right? And that was a difficult part. So we had to, sometimes I had to stop the song midway through it. And I'd say, you know, we can't splice it together like the other thing. you got to play the thing. You can't all comp the way. This You stuff. can't do that kind of thing. I said, I understand that. But this is going to take a little time. My hands are tired. I went, I, sometimes I had to wait... It's almost an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Now, you can't do that when you're playing live. So when I would, if that's tough. Right. And in the studio, I had some very good people around me. saying, okay, take your time, do this. And the thing is, when you get on one tune emotionally, you say, well, that one's not working. Let's move on to a different tune. Well, that doesn't work so good. When you're in, into a thing, you got to do. But I had to wait to my hands. The blood kept coming. And then sometimes I'd say, I got to go home and rest. I'm not used to this. You know, when I'm... My, Hands go. I have a second guitarist who's brilliant. I won't call him a second guitarist. So I have a guitarist who knows what he's doing and knows his role right. that I can, you know, fall out for a while and he can pick up the slack or just keep it going. Well, you don't have that when you're playing alone. That's why I stopped doing it. <laughs> Is it a challenge that you would like to do again? Would you no, like to do a no, part two? No, and no. No party of two? No, no rock party. No party of one, part two. No party of one, part two. No, no, no. This is it. This is this is, this is my statement. And I, I think that would be the best way. That'll make it more special. Over the years and on the party of one, you've covered many artists. Talk to me about what makes a great song in terms of for your ear, is it is it lyrically? What what is the one that, that sort of stand out and why? Well, there's there's a lot of elements in a song that can attract you. Right. Um, the title, the riff, the lyrics. If you've got all three taken care of, right. a great riff, great title, great lyrics, you got a hit song. Some of them got good lyrics, but the music is, and some of them the music is dynamite, but the lyrics are kind of light. Yeah. Um, it's it's. I'm very critical. Not like people think when they go, oh, George just goes in there, gets a six-pack of beer, and just wails and has a party. Like, nothing could be farther from the truth. Right. No, I, I, I go in there and say all the elements have to be there. And sometimes I have to take the word of others who say, you are really missing a chance. You're making a mistake not doing this song. And I would say, okay, in theory that makes sense, but I can't play it. Right. My hands won't do it. Right. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And I don't have Jim Suler, our guitarist. He can play it, and I'll just sing it. See what I'm saying? I didn't have that. So there was um, that element involved. Can George play it? Right. And he has, he has to play. He can't have anybody else. It has to be him. Uh, has the, the, the material has to be attractive, catchy, whatever, lyrics, title, whatever. Now, you're going to come. You're talking about 12. Or, you can't solve those and say, stop, said, hey, listen, I'm coming out. You guys know any good instrumentals? <laughs> to fill out the record, yeah. you do, know, do saber dance exactly for eight minutes, <laughs> for eight, right? The extended saber dance, exactly. Well, I didn't have that luxury here, so um, that that's why it took a little bit of time. And right. sometimes I'd be in the room and say, "Oh, I should have done this song." And I'd call up Scott from Rounder and say, "What about this?" And they'd say, "What about this tune?" We got an idea. I said, "Well, send it over, send it over. I'll listen, see if I can play it." I said, and "Remember, I have to be able to play it, not Jeff or Blau or or Suler." Because they can play anything, I said. I have to be able to play it, you know. I and I can't, and I don't want to be it to be too much of a struggle, Mitch. I don't want it to be, you know. Uh, I always say 
I don't mind working hard, but I don't like hard work. Right. Is it? Right? <laughs> and it's funny, it's funny that you mentioned that, because I was talking to John Waite the other day. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about some of the songs he did in the past, and he said, you know what? This guy, and I'm not going to say his name, but he said, he said, he sent in a great song, but the lyrics were all wrong. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> he, yeah. Said the mu- he said, the song was perfect, mm-hmm. but I had to rewrite the lyrics. Yeah, yeah. How do you approach writing your own songs? What comes first? Is it the riff first, and then you try to fit lyrics into sort of the the, the, the Could pattern? come either way. For me, we, we, we came up with Gear Jammer fast. Right. And somebody came up and said, you got to get some lyrics together. And I was like, because it was just moving. Actually, we played Bad of the Bone long before I put a title or any songs. So we were doing, we we're just, and it was, I said, man, we're, I discovered the key of G and it was really working. I said, now, I put together another song, Born to be Bad. Good title, good lyrics, the music. Mm, yeah. mm. I said, I wish I had Jim Sewer in the studio. Now I know why people work as teams. Right. I would like to go into, um, if I worked with a team, I said, listen, I'll take care of the title, I'll take care of the lyrics, you put together the music. Because my ear is not that good. This this chord should be here. Or here's a good riff to right. put to it. Like, uh, what grabs you first? As soon as you hear, you're cooked. You're cooked. That's why they call it a hook. Right. Because they got you. So there are songs, that, and then some of them you call them and say, oh, that's a great title, it's a great idea, good lyrics. And then they come to me and say, well, why don't you write it? I said, because I can't. I can't come up with the music. I can come up with the other stuff. Like, I think it was Elton John and his partner co-wrote. Uh, Bernie. Uh, Toppin. Yeah. Toppin. Toppin. Yeah, one of them does the lyrics, and right. the other one does the music. And I think that's how Lieber and Stoller worked. Yeah. I think that was their, their thing, and Jagger and Richards. I said, well, I tell you, I didn't. Lennon and McCartney. <laughs> Actually, it was Actually, Paul no. wrote his own stuff. Yeah, he wrote it. So they just kind of, it was a brand. It was a brand. It was a brand. And then Lennon would say, well, why don't you put this in there or that in there? They, they did work in that sense. But to really do a team, I would say, I need a musicologist. I need someone to sit in here and say, here's the lyrics, here's the title, we'll split it 50-50. Um, you come yeah. up with the music. Make sure it's a key, I can sing it. Right. You know, just make sure of that. Yeah, not, that not, means... Don't make a high-pitched squeal <laughs> But most singers can't sing in any key. Right. But great musicians can play in any key. That, see, that's a problem. That's that's <laughs> the guy you want in your band. <laughs> is it is it a craft that you still work on though, or are you gotten to a point where you know you could wake up tomorrow morning and write a great song? You can bang one out, or is it something that you still, you know, you still look at other people's lyrics and you still look at other people and you still sort of honing the craft, or is it not? I'm George. I'm I'm what sixty eight now. I've got it. <laughs> if I woke up, Mitch, in the morning and I said, I've come up with it. You know, I've heard music, not only mine, but long before that. Right. I'm a good judge of what's a good song and what isn't. Right. We all know that um, All Shook Up by Elvis Presley is a great song. Great. We all know that Georgia All My Mind is a great song. It doesn't take a genius to figure that stuff out. So I know a hit when I hear it. Right. Or a good song. If I woke up in the morning at this point and I came up with a song that I thought was, I'd be in the studio within an hour. If I came up with it. Yeah. Now, if I don't, you know, so you're no worse off. You're no worse off doing your catalog. Because 90% of the people that buy the ticket, that's what they want to hear anyway. Right. So that's a nice spot to get to. If you can get to that spot. I'm fond of saying, if you got one song, you can work forever. You got three songs, you got a career. You got five songs, you got a very good career. Forget about Dylan, McCartney, The Stones. But they're it's true, rarity. though. Yeah, but they're rarities. Every song they have, it doesn't matter what you play. Not every act is blessed like that. Usually, they got a you got a handful of them, and you come to hear, and then you 
fill in the show with other things. But you're right. You know, I, I'm I'm just going through the mental Rolodex of what we call Heritage Act these days, whether it's Night Ranger or Sticks or Kiss, mm-hmm. and you go there to hear two or three songs. You go mm-hmm. there to hear Rock and Roll All Night. You go there mm-hmm. to hear Lady. You go mm-hmm. there to. That's enough to keep working. <laughs> it, it is. That's enough to it's keep going. It's amazing, though, right? To think. Yeah. If I'm sitting there and, and I sit there and I go, I talk to John Fogarty often. We sit there and he, he says this there and you know, I go, John, shut up. Are you out of your mind? You know what kind of catalog you have? Do you know how many songs you have? Yep. You know how many songs I have? You can count them on one hand. I, I need 10 hands to count your songs. That's how many you've got. And you're sitting there whining to me. You've got to be out of your mind. You know? They're all great. I mean, I, I, I always stop him in his tracks and say, I don't want to hear from you anymore. Do you know who came to see you play? And he said, why well, did this festival? I said, no. Do you know who, who came, came to see, see you play? play? The Beatles. All four of them. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear how hard you have it. The Beatles came to see you and you have that catalog? Come on, Mitch. Let's put it in perspective over here. Yep. So I go I go see Tom Jones as often as I can. He always does what Snoop puts a cat and he always does it. It's, it's not unusual. And he loves it. He's not putting in the motions. He loves it that he got those songs. And, of course, he has Delilah. He has, you know, Green and Grass at Home. He has She's a Lady. Yeah. He has other tunes. But when you see him doing those tunes, people say, God, isn't he tired of that since 65? I said, no, he's not tired of it. He's probably thrilled. That's what made him. That's what made him. He, I can see it in his eyes. I can see it. He's loving it. You know, I know that Stones played Jumpin' Jack Flash last time. They played it for 15 minutes. Why wouldn't they? I mean, come on. It's the greatest rock and roll song ever. And they wrote it. Why wouldn't they love it? Of course. So I'm on a much different level. I'm still of that mindset to say, oh, I want to go out there and do, I I wish I could just go ripping right through it like Fogarty could or Dylan. You know, oh, he's great. Saw McCartney. You know, he didn't, they go, well, what's he going to play? I go, does it matter? (laughs) When you go see him, you don't care. You don't care. The greatest catalog on the planet. And he does like a 36-song set. Yeah, but they're short songs. Yeah, two minutes. (laughs) But still, still. (laughs) It's still a 60-minute concert, but... Yeah, if you nail it down. But you never hear the same set twice. You do hear a lot of the same songs. Yeah. But he does mix it up, as the Stones do. They mix it up. But you always will hear Brown Sugar. You always hear Jumpin' Jack Flash, Honky Tonk, uh, Start Me Up, Satisfaction. You always hear them. And then they include... Two or three other ones they didn't do the last time they came through. And Paul's pretty much the same way. He, uh, he'll, he'll get you. Last time I saw him, he let off with a hard day's night. Great. But he always does. He always does Hey Jude. And he always does Yesterday. And he does those. Um, those are monster songs. I said, if, if some people put out monster songs, every song the Beatles do is King Kong. <laughs> the yeah. biggest monster songs. And that's very fortunate. I'm so glad that Paul is taking care of his health, yep. his voice. Yep. And another thing I like about that is to go see him, that when the Beatles retired playing live in 66, the equipment in those days was so bad. They, they were designed for high school bands. And the technology was not there that they could perform. So he lived long enough where they created sound systems and instruments and synthesizers so he can go out and do his catalog. Finally, technology is caught up to the Beatles, not the other way around. I said, so I'm so glad, Paul, you experienced what we experienced. When you were on stage, we couldn't hear you. You couldn't hear anything. That's why you guys stopped. And it wasn't just because people were screaming, which they were. The equipment was, the amplifiers were this, you know, it 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 was a nightmare for them. Why do you think they stopped? You know, it was just, 
too much to deal with. So later when things started to come around, he stuck it out, and now he, he must be in just heaven. I can see it. I've seen him five times now. Maybe. It's always a great show. Yeah, always, always. Never lets him. He's never going to let people forget the Beatles. Never. And as good as the Beatles are, that's the harder the Stones work. You dig what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Are you with me? Yeah. You know what I'm talking they about. They have to play catch up. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're right there. You know, they're the, they might not get there, but that's what keeps them, you know, that's what keeps the hammer down. I got to see McCartney and the Stones within two days. So, well, you opened for the Stones on top of that. so The Stones now, well, you see the Stones now are not the Stones that I saw when I worked with them. Right. The Stones now. You, are, you, you were, it was Stones at Prince in you, right? Was one time, one night, yeah. We worked with various acts. <laughs> what, with various what, acts. What, a, what a combination. That, that must have just But been... the Stones really turned it around after that. They started to really get their, their for lack of a word, their shit together. Yeah. And now they're a force to be reckoned with. They... Ron Wood is playing greater than he ever played in his life. And Keith Richards is right on. I think they straightened out their lives, personally, chemically, whatever. And physically, Jagger's kept it together. I mean, the guy weighs the same as he did in 64. Which is unbelievable. unbelievable. He, he looks like a, like a teenage cheerleader. He does. It's fantastic. I don't know how he does it. It's, yeah, it's take, embarrassing to me because yeah, I, don't, I don't... Look at me. Yeah, <laughs> it takes hard work. <laughs> right. You can't just say, yes, but Mick was born that way. Yes, he was. But to sustain it for 50 years... That's he. You have to work at that. Take, take it from me. You know, I look at food. I put on weight. We all do. We have to return fifty. Yep. Yeah, you know, that's just the life. That's that, the way. That's this year for me. By well, way. see, there, oh. there it goes. Why do you think so many doctors <laughs> say to you when you're fifty-one, fifty-two, no matter what condition, and they said you have to change your diet and get some exercise because your body changes. It stops. It doesn't process donuts. So now <laughs> you have to eat apples. Right. Okay. And nowadays, you got to get up and move around and keep that blood circulating. It's not like when you were 25. And sadly, not too many people listen to that. Jagger has, but he's always been doing it from day one. So that's something you just... Which is remarkable, because given the rock and roll context, Mm -hmm. you can have pizza every night and Mm -hmm. beer every night. You can can get off that train. Uh, Let me start wrapping this up here. You're doing two things. A dollar per ticket for Mm -hmm. LLS, Mm -hmm. which is uh, Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Talk to me about doing that because you're in a position where you have fans come out, your people are buying tickets, and it's so nice to give back. You don't have to give back, and a lot of mm-hmm. folks don't, mm-hmm. but you do. Talk to me about that LLS and the importance of giving back, the importance of saying, yeah, you know what, I'm going to give this dollar to you and, and help out. Well, the importance is there's never going to be enough cash to do research for diseases, no matter what those diseases are, whether they're curable or whether they're non curable. And if our governments work properly, uh, the money that we pay in taxes, which is a lot, that money should be going into those things. Right. Researching these these, these diseases. Because that would actually save us money in the long run. If it we would. Because people eradicate. live better. Right. They'll live better. They'll live longer. You know. Yes. And people say, oh, I don't want to pay taxes for this kind of thing. I said, well, okay. Well, suppose suppose there's some kid at 11 years old, uh, you know, comes up with an incurable cancer that we can't cure. And that kid could grow up to be president someday. Yeah. Or that kid could grow up to cure a disease or become the most famous pianist of all time. Yeah. you got to think in those terms. At least I do. Well, say, hey, man, this, is, this is an investment for the future of the planet. Yes. You know? and I said, it's a sad state of affairs when a, when a drunken rocker steps up and says, I'll help. Right. <laughs> so wait a minute. I'm just a guitar player. I'm not a politician. I'm not a, a scientist or a doctor. You know, I said, you people should be doing this. You know, so it's just a no-brainer to me. I would like, to, if I was 
in charge, I would say, why don't we just get a fund where the money goes in for all diseases, a catch-all, so to speak. That actually, you know, in Quebec, we have what we call a generations fund. Mm -hmm. And part of our taxes go to the generations mm -hmm. fund. And the theory on that one was our debt was getting so big that the next generation is not going to be able to pay for it. Mm -hmm. So we have this generation mm -hmm. fund. And that should be the same kind of fund. There should be this generations fund mm -hmm. that helps out not just with the yeah. debt, but with cancer yeah. and with those. You have, to, you have to be able to be bright enough to invest in the future. And you yes. can't invest in the future if the future is sick or they fear of getting sick or they get something. I think it really talk t starts with the, uh, what, what do you call it, the ecology, ecologist. Yes. There's not in your country. I'm very impressed. Very impressed with your country. I'm very impressed. But I drive around the States a lot. I said, don't people have any brains or pride? Look at all this litter. You're throwing litter in the streets. Now, a lot of people can't pick it up. A lot of it's not biodegradable, whatever. So it rots, and then it goes into the ground, and then it gets into our water system. And then children start drinking it, and they get diseases from this. And that's why cancer's like it is now. It wasn't like it was 50 years ago. It's all over the place now. Why? Because of the air we breathe, the foods we eat, the garbage that people throw into the oceans, that the fish eat, and then we eat the fish. And it gets into our system, and it gets into our children's system. So how are you supposed to survive? I said, you're just, you're just ruining it for yourself. Don't, don't you want your grandchildren to grow up to be the most brilliant people on the planet? Well, of course you do. That's why you have socialized medicine, so they can get a chance. I'll pay. Hey, I'll pay. If it keeps, keeps five people get the same break for dental care as one rich person. And that, the kids, kids can't help it if their parents don't have money. It's not their fault. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 it just the, seems so easy to me. Uh, and I, how can I put this? But the Canadian perspective, when I see somebody on Facebook or something that, that in the States that has a cancer and they have to have, you know, a special benefit gala or something, I'm like, a benefit gala? Right, right. Why don't you just go to the doctor? Yeah. Like, it, 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 it I, baffles I think, my mind. I see, uh, well, I, I see yeah. people firsthand saying, what about people who are poor and don't have insurance for this? They're shit out of luck. They're going to die. Yes. They're going to die in six months. So you're saying that only rich people should survive. That's basically what you're telling us. That's the new Darwin. The survival of the fittest is your, your, yeah. your bank account. But the fit should be helping out the unfit. Yes. You know what I mean? Well, especially since the unfit, sometimes it's not their fault. I mean, you're not... I, again, again, I've been to enough pediatric places where kids are dying of AIDS yeah. and never had any drugs, never had any sex, but they got it. Kids dying of cancer, or multiple sclerosis, or, or anything. anything. You, you know, I said they didn't. It's not because they're lazy and didn't go to school. Exactly, this is not their fault. <laughs> it's not their fault. You know, so I'm gonna put some cash in here and take care of them. Hey, maybe one of them will will, will survive and grow up and become a promoter and hire me. Yes. yes. How about that? Yes. <laughs> and let me come in and, and interview you. Um, and now I'll wrap up with these things. Uh, Record store day. You just put out a single. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the importance of that and and supporting. Because it really supports moms and pop stores. It, it, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, I don't want to say it's against the big boxes and against, but it really helps, you know, the community store and it builds a community with, within the fan base. Uh, talk to me about putting out that single and sort of being part of the RSD moment. Well, I'll tell Movement. you, that, that's come new to my attention, Mitch. Right. That's new to me. That they explain these things record sick. Because I'm way behind the times because I'm working on a guitar. I'm working on things. And I have to be have people around like you to hit me what's going on today George I'll right. say why don't we do this and they go George they don't even make those kind of amplifiers anymore <laughs> you see I, I'm, I have to have people to keep me up to date up to like, like, like a senator who has a staff right who tells them 
this is what's happening now. This is what's happening. Well, the single for me, to begin with, to be honest, was very self-serving. Right. I heard the song. I loved it. I wanted to put it in the show. And then the powers to be, the rest of the people in the organization, they took it to the next level. Rounder did it. Um, and, and then, of course... Adam and Hutt hit me to Record Store Day, and I'm thinking, well, was it everyday Record Store Day? He goes, no, they don't make records anymore. That's why it's Record Store Day. <laughs> You're not getting it. I said, well, good. I'll just make the music. And you do the other You stuff. go, yeah. You know, I'm just a guitar player, Mitch, you know. Yeah. And I'm, I'm struggling just to do that. You know, you, you want to give me all the credit in the world. That's one thing. But I'll, I'll get out there and do the band thing and all that and talk to Mitch and all that. But I'm relying on you folks to put your ear to the street and see what's happening good and what's happening bad, you know, and, you know, sift it all through. And I, I can't be a, a, you know, sit there and take credit of all these new things or great things that are happening. Who can keep track of it all? You know, good and bad. Yeah. So you have to be, you, have, you need help. Yeah. You need help. So if anybody needs help, it's yours truly. <laughs> but it's nice, it's nice to see part of, part of that and stuff. And I know we got the sign to, to wrap up, so I'll finish with this. As we speak right now, your New York Mets are number one, the National League East. Yes. Are we going to have the same conversation in September? Probably not. No. So let's have it now. <laughs> but you know, I, like, are, are you hopeful? The, I'm a person that lives in the present. Right. You know, I, tell them, I know what I got right now. I, hey, how about this? I ate today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what's going to happen tomorrow? I don't know. No, no, no. So I'm just enjoying what's happening now. But it's great, though, right? It's, it's, it's not, b- baseball keeps you young. I mean, music, baseball, sports, between, between baseball, hockey, listening to you, listening to... The right? unique thing about that particular game is, the, this is why gamblers don't like it, professional gamblers. It's too unpredictable. Very much you, so. Th- that's why they stay away from it. And that's why I like it. I said, most people in the world, they pick up a book, a really great mystery, and they want to li- read the last chapter first to see how it comes out. I said, die. well, baseball doesn't <laughs> work that way. You know, it, you know there's going to be a, a, a fourth quarter, eight seconds left, and you know all the bad boys are going to be trying to get that. I said, baseball, you don't, it's too unpredictable. You just don't know. And that's why a lot of people I've known just said, that's why I don't like it. I said, that's why I do like it. I like sitting there not knowing what's going to happen. Well, that's what I like, that it's never over. When you're watching a hockey game or a football game, mm-hmm. and, and there's, like you said, eight seconds to go, and yeah. the team's up 3 nothing. Yeah. well, they're not going to score three goals in eight seconds, no, so you go not, home. Not. In baseball, it could be two outs, two strikes, you're never, ninth that, inning, you're down right. three runs. That's right. And it could, yeah, turn around like that. Half an yeah. hour later, it I mean, could be... You could have an eight-run lead in the first inning. We got this one wrapped up. All of a sudden, it's 10-8 to eight in the fifth inning. Yeah. And you're behind. Yeah. <laughs> and, and quite frankly, sitting out in the sun, just with the smell of the... It's just the perfect... <laughs> how did they, how did they, now, I watch baseball a lot on television. Yeah. Now, how did they plan this? This is, this is God's work at best. Yeah. At best. The inning's over. And before the next hitter comes up, they throw the ball around the infield. The pitcher takes five warm-up pitches. How come, Mitch, I don't know about ladies, but I know about guys. How come in that small period of time, it's actually the perfect time, and it takes just as much time to get up, Go to the bathroom, do what you got to do, and you come back and you do not miss a thing. How do they time that? I think they timed it like that. They they must have had people go to the bathroom. Yeah, but some people have a longer bathroom to walk to, <laughs> and some people have to do something different. You, I, it, it's unbelievable. And no one says, "Oh, I got to get back. I got to get back." No, it always works out that way. So I come back and I go, "How did God figure that out? How can you not like this game?" I know. So I'm fond of saying, when the World Series ends. The last out is made. I always say this. 
last out of Maine, all of a sudden, it's 20 degrees colder. It is. It really is. And you sit there, I don't care where you are, you could be in Detroit, or you could be in uh, Philadelphia. And it's darker, too. The fir- After the first pitch is thrown on opening day, it's 15 degrees warmer. Yes, I fully agree. Am I wrong? No, I fully and agree. And that's the beauty of it. When the All of a sudden, as soon as they take, throw the first pitch, you take off your jacket. Oh, yeah, it's here. Ah, oh, yeah. Who cares? You see, to me, the season starts the second day of the season. Opening day doesn't count. It doesn't count. Yeah, especially this year. That's the no. celebration. Yeah, but that's the celebration. Yeah, I've been in opening day games a lot. I go to them a lot. you got to experience opening day in Dodger Stadium. It's nothing like it. And I've been to a lot of them. They're all good. Something special there. When opening day, after the first pitch is thrown, the, the eruption of people applauding, even if the guy throws it over the backstop or it's a ball, the eruption when the first pitch happens, and you always turn to a stranger or turns to you and goes, all right, yeah, okay, all right. See, I got to experience that. I, I did opening days in the Northeast, a lot of Montreal, and after uh, the first pitch, you'd go, oh, it's really fucking cold. Can I go home now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I need to experience the Southern well, California. Well, I've been <laughs> other places, too. I've been in Philly on opening day. I've been in Boston, yeah, places like going, that. Can we go home yet? <laughs> th- then they're not real baseball fans. They're not real baseball well, fans. Well, I'm well, a big O. Uh, anyway. if, 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 if you go outside and it's about 29 degrees... Right, that's cold. The wind's blowing. It's cold. Fahrenheit. And a woman and a woman comes up to you and says, "Out here, outside, right now, I want to make passionate love to you." Do you say, "Oh no, it's too cold"? <laughs> no, no, you don't. You don't. So that's baseball to me. I said, "It's never going to be too cold for a baseball game for George Thorogood." Yeah, there you go. I know we have to go. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Always Mitch, a pleasure. As always. Always. As always. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.